Ladies and gentlemen, to those among you who are easily frightened, we suggest you turn away now. To those of you who think they can take it, we say, welcome. We never talk much, never talked, never kept a conversation. everybody to this month's episode of the classic horrors club podcast that was a little song called monster baby by tice and cheryl freeman from monster songs available on itunes monster baby why richard have i picked a song called monster baby well it could be because we're going to have a creepy cohen christmas we are going to be taking a look at the original it's alive trilogy it's alive from 1974 it lives again from 1978 and It's Alive 3, Island of the Alive, from 1987. So we're spanning the decades, or a decade, with the It's Alive trilogy. So that should be fun. Let's call the meeting to order. We have some new members that have joined our Facebook group, the Classic Horrors Club Podcast. So we would like to welcome Paul Mintern, Frank Johnson, and Rob Kelly. Thank you for joining, and we look forward to interacting with you on Facebook, and we invite anyone else who's listening to join our Facebook group page. Yeah, we get some good discussion going over there. You know, you always get that post-Halloween kind of everyone just kind of decompresses a little bit, and as you enter the holiday season, and sometimes watching horror films or sci-fi films don't take precedent, but nothing like... You know, entering the Thanksgiving time holiday season, watching the It's Alive trilogy and getting all ready for the holiday season. So there's a lot of good horror movies out there that are Christmas themed, but this was on our our stack to do. And it's the first of December. I mean, if we're going to do a Christmas movie, that would come later in the month, I imagine, you know, if we were going to do that. Well, it it might. And and we may talk about that before the end of this show. And of course, I guess you can kind of think of what a wonderful gift you know, for for a couple to receive, then a little mutant baby that's going to be killing everyone in the delivery room and running off into the sewers and procreating on an island five years later. I mean, that's that's a wonderful gift. That's the gift that keeps on giving. And actually, I didn't think about it. We're not actually talking about the 2009 remake of It's Alive, but actually it takes place at Christmas, which is really odd. I mean, there's a Christmas tree in the, the couple's house, but it's in New Mexico or somewhere where it's warm and sunny, and they never address the fact that it's Christmas. There's just a tree up. So technically, we could say this is a Christmas episode because one of the movies has a, a Christmas tree in it. You made it to that, that bonus round that extra credit i actually did not the island of the alive and as we get to talking about these films i actually really like the first two but yeah i tapped out on island of the alive i was like you know okay i'm good i'm good with this franchise well you know i'm an overachiever and sometimes you're punished for that i at the end though i do want to say a couple things about the the remake but it's not the focus of our show for sure because by no way shape or form does it fit into a classic horror category and we're pushing it a little bit with the 87 film, but is this the first time we dipped into the 80s? I'm trying to think. Did we do... I know we, we've I, done 70s, obviously. Yeah, we've done late but, 70s, but 
Maybe Island of Moreau might have been the latest one we've done. Yeah, I'm drawing a blank. We I don't think we've actually dipped into the 80s before, so this is our first time. And the reason we're doing that is because it was part of the It's Alive trilogy, which came out in a beautiful Blu-ray box set. A little light on the extras, but there's a few good uh, interviews on there, and uh, there's a bit more extras on the first disc, but... Uh, I would have. I kind of wanted to see maybe a little bit more. You listen to some of the commentary. Yeah, Larry and... Cohen himself does a commentary on all of them. Uh, I'll talk more about that. I'm also hoping, Richard, as we go through, we'll talk about Larry Cohen a little bit, just sort of his history, some of the other movies he made that brought him up to It's Alive, and which uh, I'm going to say that, uh, you know, like it or not, I think that was probably the peak of his <laughs> creative uh, success well, was I, It's Alive. You know, he did, and again, as we'll talk about it, he did actually do... He created a, a classic sci-fi series in, in the late 60s that I guess I just didn't connect the two that he was actually involved in uh, in a little show called The Invaders that we'll talk about, which is actually a show that I haven't seen for a few years, but I do have both seasons on DVDs. And that's a show that just doesn't get talked about enough. It's, it's a show that I remember from my childhood. So yeah, we'll talk about that when we talk about Larry Cohen, but... And he's done some other stuff that he created along the way that I also remember that is non-genre related from my childhood. So he's been part of my my viewing habits since I was a little kid and never even realized it. Well, that's all in new business, which we'll get to shortly, but we've got some old business to take care of. And actually, we're getting better and better. I mean, you think old business should become shorter each time because maybe over time we'll either spend a little more time researching or be more prepared or just become more knowledgeable about things but the one thing we do have is we have a challenge hanging out there in our last episode well gosh i guess it would have been was it last episode or two that we played vincent price tag um I, it may have been two but yeah. uh, and then we got the feedback, the feedback last time that where we were called out we were accused of copping out and not answering one of the questions we all about Vincent Price, 10 questions, and the question was, what movie would have been better had Vincent Price been in it? We both agreed, as everyone would, that any movie would be better with Vincent Price in it. We were called out that that was uh, a cop-out, so we've been challenged. It it, it was. We we admit it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and, you know, we've had a, a month to think about it, and I'll tell you, it's not easy for me i mean it's still hard uh, to come up with one but uh well i know a lot of people say you know what if vincent price would have been in a hammer film but i'm not sure that he would have fit into to the hammer universe i mean i'm thinking peter cushing christopher lee a lot of those films were very serious and and vincent price could certainly play evil you know and and uh certainly play serious thinking of the Witchfinder general for example but I don't know. I mean, the Hammer films had a style to them. I'm not convinced personally that Vincent Price would have would have fit into yeah, a Hammer film. I think it would have to be something, and I've not seen it, so I don't know specifically, but something like The Man Who Could Cheat Death, maybe more of a drama thriller than a flat-out horror movie. Yeah, that he would have. Yeah, I mean, he could have fit into that. I mean, that's not my favorite Hammer film. It might have been if he'd been in it. It might have it might have improved <laughs> it a little bit. Yeah, maybe. Well, my answer in this, uh, it's sort of a cop-out as well, but uh, the Batman movie, based on the TV series, I think had Egghead been in that, uh, or even, even better if they had made a sequel and it used some of the other villains. But as long as Egghead was in a theatrical version of the Batman TV series, that's my answer. That's where I would have liked to see Vincent Price on the big screen. I do love him as I get. I mean, he's on my wall here. Uh, 
uh, with artwork in the media room. Uh, yeah, I, that would have been fun. I and it, I'm sorry to interrupt, but isn't that by Matthew Parmenter? It is. It and is. Matthew Parmenter is in the uh, Facebook group page. He, he so is. Yeah, I will give a shout out to him. Yeah. He does some amazing work, and and I've got three pieces of his uh, hanging in my media room here. I've got a egghead. I've got, of course, Adam West as Batman. And a really good Cesar Romero as the Joker. Um, so he does some great work. And um, yeah, I mean, that would have been fun if we would have had a second Batman movie uh, with some extra villains thrown in for, for good measure. So that right. would have been fun. Yeah, and you took that to uh, even further links as we were talking before the show. Would you like to tell your idea? Yeah, you know, I mean, obviously there was some villains that were not used in the, uh, the Batman series. And one of the villains that we didn't get a chance to see was um, the Scarecrow. And I'm trying to think. I know the Scarecrow was invented. I mean, he was created before that. Maybe he wasn't as popular in the comics in the 1960s. I know in the 70s, the Scarecrow had quite a few stories that came out. So maybe that time period, they just weren't using him in the comics. That Maybe that's why they didn't use him on the series. Or maybe... The Scarecrow may have been deemed too scary. We hadn't gone full-blown gothic yet with the Batman stories, but Scarecrow was was kind of a creepy character, and so it, it might have been deemed a little too creepy, and maybe there's been some things said about that. I'm thinking maybe there was. The more I'm talking about it here, I'm thinking maybe I read something like that at one point, but I think it would have been great if Vincent Price played the Scarecrow on the Batman series. I think he would have been able to tap into that devilish grin and uh doing something you know uh you know horrific to batman and robin i think he would have been pretty cool in that role you would have had to change it up a bit you wouldn't want to keep him under a mask you know maybe they would have done some type of makeup or something like that with a cat i think it would have been would have been fun Oh, the Scarecrow, by the way, appeared in World's Finest Comics number three, September of 1941. So he was definitely around. Oh, wow. Maybe not uh, used as frequently uh, in those early years, but he, he was early created by Bill Finger, Bob Kane, and Jerry Robinson. I didn't realize he went back that far. So, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mine, I kept thinking that for me, Vincent Price, I enjoy him the most when he's in a gothic setting. And so I started thinking about what other gothic horror films you know from that time period would have been uh you know kind of perfect for price and i came up with the terror which of course stars boris karloff and yeah you know it's pretty easy to sit there and play the game of replacing karloff or lugosi or cushing or lee and putting price in but i think the terror would have been perfect for price and i don't know maybe it might have been a little bit better Uh, the terror is and we don't say guilty pleasure, but it's a movie that I've always enjoyed. It's a, you know, for many years, it, and I believe it is still in the public domain, but for many years, all we had was kind of a rough copy of it. And it's a kind of a bizarre story, and there's a few things that just don't make a lot of sense in it. But it's fun to watch, and it's fun to look at. And you got Boris Karloff, and you got a young Jack Nicholson. I know that it was made around the same time as The Raven. So, you know, what if you know, Boris Karloff had fulfilled his contract, but Vincent Price owed a couple of days on his, and he went ahead and and did the terror. I think it would have been a very different film, and possibly might have been given a little bit more love, because, you know, Karloff wasn't necessarily forgotten, but Vincent Price was still doing a lot of mainstream mainstream stuff on into the, the 70s and 80s, and so maybe it wouldn't have gotten lost along the way, 
and maybe it would have gotten a little more love over the years. So I don't know. That's that's mine. Speaking of replacing Karloff, what if uh, Vincent Price was in Targets instead of Karloff? I was thinking of he, that. It would have given it a more of a um, sort of a sly, comical, or uh, kind of... Uh, I think his approach to growing old and being out of favor as an actor would have been different but interesting. Yeah, I mean, the, the problem was is that at that time, Price was still younger, and so he wouldn't have been quite the going-out-to-pasture age. But, you know, what if Targets would have been made, say, in the 80s, as, as, you know, tar- as Vincent Price maybe around the Wales of August time frame? I mean, because... The elements of the sniper and stuff, unfortunately, is timeless when you watch that. that. That's not a gothic setting. It's modern for 1968 and, unfortunately, is just as applicable almost today. You could have easily made that movie in, in the 80s without really changing anything and just kind of plugging in Vincent Price into that role. Yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. Like kind of what if it would have been made in a different time that Vincent Price would have been older. Yeah. And could he have played, back to Batman, could he have played Ross Agul? Now, I know probably not as we know him today because he seems like he's much more action. You look at some of the art from him in the 70s and 80s, it, it resembles Vincent Visually, Price. visually, I think and he would I could have been see great. him as sort of a scheming, sort of a kind of a Fu Manchu character. I, I, I'm getting a, a Dr. Goldfoot vibe as Rosh Al Ghul in the, Rosh Al Ghul in the Bikini Machine. Um, yeah, I think he could have he could have pulled it off, actually. I mean, because he could have tapped into the more, you know, Witchfinder General evil side for that. Obviously, wouldn't have fit with the Adam West version of Batman, but Rosh Al Ghul, when did he come into play? I mean, it was I want to say he came into play circa 1970. I'm not sure he had been seen in the comics yet in the 1960s. He would have been good. Uh, he he would have been really good. I mean, because we had we've had a few actors who have brought him to life on the big screen. I mean, we've seen him. Um, uh, Liam Neeson, of course, did him in Batman Begins, and then I don't know the actor that played him in the Arrow series, but I felt he did a good job. And has there been another? more recent version of Rashal Ghoul is has there been a Rashal Ghoul in Gotham? I think there has been. I think I read somewhere that and I I used to watch Gotham and admittedly stopped before the end of the previous season before this last one. They kind of have gone off into a territory where it's like a little too far stretched for me. However, I am intrigued they're wrapping things up this season and so I have seen some trailers and I might Watch maybe the last handful of episodes to kind of see how they wrap up the show. Ra's al Ghul appeared in Batman number 232, Daughter of the Demon, in June of 71. So you are correct, yeah. sir, about that. He was created by Julius Schwartz, Denny O'Neill, and Neil Adams. Yeah, those, yeah, those iconic... And you know, I'd like to say I'm pulling these from my memory banks, but you know I'm sitting here with my phone looking up. You're pulling it from your talking, bat computer so, is what yes, you're doing, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. So I, think I, I know we're going on and on about this, but here's one final thing. What if Vincent Price had been in It's Alive? What if he was one of those professors or doctors that was just had a bit part, but, you know, was there sort of just to add a speculation about what was happening or his theory? It, well, it probably would have put the movie on, like, the next level because you could then advertise it as a Vincent Price film. 
yeah, I mean, he could have easily played one of the doctors, you know. I don't know. I don't know if he would have been able to add much more to the film, really. I'm kind of thinking of some of the films where he had kind of smaller roles, like House of a Thousand Dolls. I mean, that movie, have you ever seen that one? No. As much as we've talked about yeah, it, I've it, not it, seen it. It's not, I mean, it's not a great film. I mean, it's kind of a paint-by-numbers flick that he just happens to be in. It's hard. I mean, it is a Vincent Price film, but he doesn't have a huge role in it. He and he's there for for mostly presence. And I kind of feel that if he did this alive, maybe that's what it would have been more of a, you know, I'm I'm here doing my day's work. Although Vincent Price loved everything he did, so he would never would have phoned in a performance. But yeah, it would have changed it. It would have changed the tone a little bit. That's all we have for old business, unless you consider voicemail feedback on our previous episodes, which I guess we do. We have uh, one voicemail from Rob Kelly commenting on our Island of Dr. Moreau episode. He was able to leave this message by calling 616-649-2582. That's 616-649-CLUB. And that is one of several ways we invite you as well to leave us feedback. Hi, guys. Uh, This is Rob Kelly from the Fire and Water Podcast Network calling... Just to talk briefly about your latest episode, The Island of Dr. Moreau Show. Um, it was really fun. Uh, I'm a big fan of that story, and I think all the film versions have something to recommend uh, from each. I would have to say that like, I think the, the, the 30s one, uh, The Island of uh, Lost Souls, is probably, I would say, argue the best version because I just think it hangs together best as a movie. I do think that the one from the 90s with Marlon Brando has something to recommend it to because I think it, the, the production of that movie itself, as everyone knows, was crazy. And I think it almost kind of infuses the madness of the book into the production. I, again, I can't really say it's a good movie, but it feels like the shoot itself felt like an island of madness, which is what the book is about. So in some weird way, it almost seems to be like uh, a metatextual comment on the story itself. The one with Burt Lancaster from the 70s, I think it's good, but I think it's it's just entirely too slick and kind of passive for what a nutty story that is. So professional, it's certainly the most professional kind of, of all of them, but uh, I can't, I, you know, just don't think there's a whole lot to say about it. Um, and then finally, I did want to talk about the Twilight people. I had never heard of this movie until I saw it on the big screen of all places. Uh, the, um, some friends of mine out here in New Jersey have a group called Exhumed Films where they show horror movies on the big screen. They get prints and they show them. They do double features. And it's really cool. They've been doing it for almost 20 years now. And they did a double feature. And I can't remember what the first feature was. But the second one was Twilight People. And I had never heard of this movie. I wasn't familiar with Eddie Romero. And um, they they show these double features. They start at like 10 o'clock at night. So by the time they got to Twilight People... It was like one in the morning, and this movie just felt like a fever dream. It was just so weird and off-putting, and, like, the guy that looked like Jamie Farr is the bat guy, and, like, it was just... I remember, like, almost falling asleep at different parts of it, not because the movie was bad, just because I was so tired, and then I'd wake up and see these weird... Like, it was just... I don't know. It was, like, just a surreal experience, and I loved it. I loved how bonkers it was, and I loved that Eddie Romero clearly never had much money to work with, probably had a couple extra bucks, and he really went for it. I mean, the bad effects and everything else. Pam Greer is in it, of course, as you guys pointed out. So I, I, it's a bad movie, but I love it. It's just so friggin' strange. And that final shot of the bad guy flying off just 
I remember laughing uncontrollably at like two in the morning and everyone in the theater just laughing at the sheer weirdness of the Twilight people. So I'm really glad you highlighted it because it, it deserves it. It's, it's just a, a bonkers movie. So um, I guess it's going to do it. Thank you so much for uh, making me be one of the winners of the contest. That was super exciting. Thanks so much. I love the show. Um, I just think it's terrific. It's super fun. Again, I'm so glad Chris Franklin introduced it to me. So you guys are doing a great job, and I'm looking forward to next month's show. Okay, uh, take it easy. Bye. Thank you for that awesome voicemail. And yeah, how how fantastic you got a chance to see, of all films, the Twilight people on the big screen. You always hear about Derek and and what's going on up in the Northwest, and they have screenings all the time. And you know, we have screenings here, like at Cinema Go Go, and we get a chance to see some great classic '50s and '60s flicks on the big screen. Something like the Twilight People is that's a deep dive on that one. That's that's pretty cool. I would I I would have liked to have seen that. On Can the you big imagine screen. the Batman spreading his wings on all its full widescreen glory? That would have been kind of awesome. Yeah, yeah, that'd have been fun to see. Let's uh, play the trailer of our first movie and come back and talk about It's Alive. It's alive. It's alive. Can you hear me? It can't be saved. It's got to die. It's alive. It's alive. Why are you so anxious to be the one to do it? It's alive. Doctor! Demon's out of here! It's alive. Nobody knows how this thing happened. It's really a matter of speculation, and I think perhaps that's for the best. After all, if we find out that the cause is medication that we manufacture, and it was administered over a long period of time... What do your interests recommend? Absolute destruction of this thing. It went down the storm drains. That's how it can travel the length of the city without anybody seeing it. Don't touch me. Don't you touch me. They stole my baby. Did you see it? Did you see it? What does it look like? What are you afraid of? Get those cameras out of my face, please. I got no comment. I had nothing to do with this. Will you get that thing out of my face? Get out of the way! He could have killed you. You know why he didn't? You know why he didn't kill you? You've never been exposed to radioactivity in radioactive material or undergone extensive x-rays. No, Doctor, I told you. Can't rule out uh, genetic damage. My department has already cautioned the police about excessive violence. If it could be dispatched with a bullet, or, or better still, some kind of a gas. Undoubtedly, it is very small, and any kind of bodily harm, especially from gunshots or, or explosives. In other words, you want me uh, to sign away the body, is that it? Well, it's your right. After all, you are the child's father.
I just want to say before we start that I, a few months ago, had watched a documentary about Larry Cohen called King Cohen. Uh, I reviewed it for Boom Howdy. And I'm going to fill in some information as we go along that I saw from that. I, like I said earlier, hopefully we can kind of talk about his career. And I'll just start out. I know you've got your history. You always do. Larry Cohen was born July 15th, 1941 in Kingston, New York. He grew up in Manhattan and he talked about in King Cohen how he used to carry groceries so that he could get money to go to the movies. He grew up in the area, got right into the business early. He was an NBC page and he really started his career in television and writing right away. He considers, says he was an idea man. Man, you can tell from watching this movie and, and hearing him talk on the commentaries that he he claims he's immune to rejection. And that is absolutely true if you look at his career and the things that he's produced and made. Really, by not accepting no and taking his rejection and turning it around. Do you have anything about his early days? Well, I mean, I've got some of the uh, the work that he did prior to doing it's alive is that you want to want to sure sure well and do you have i know you mentioned the invaders early did you have anything else to say about that because that was one of his early tv projects yeah i mean he actually created a couple of shows from the 60s um he created the invaders which if some of you out there most of you out there are probably familiar with it but some of you might not be because it's not something that gets talked about as much it ran for two seasons in the late 60s and it had uh, roy thinnis playing the character of david vincent and basically, it's, you know, the first episode, well, actually every episode, the opening credits explain that he's driving late one night on the road and basically sees an alien ship land and aliens have landed and they're living amongst us and planning bad things. And it kind of is a, a fugitive-like series where he's basically going from town to town, encountering the guest star of the week and getting involved in a plot. And he's basically thwarting the aliens' various you know, schemes that they're planning to take over the Earth. And the only way you can see the aliens, recognize them, is by their pinky finger that won't bend. And uh, by the second season, he starts getting a few other people that kind of uh, are aware and believe him and that the aliens really are there. Most of the time, people don't believe him, but sometimes someone does. And by the second season, he's not necessarily alone. It's a show that I remember when we first got cable, it played on Saturday night's at 10.30, before the creature feature started with Cremation Mortem. It's, it's a fun, it, it starts off, you know, every episode has that, the invaders in color. And it's a fun series. Um, but for some reason, you know, that's like the only time I've ever seen it on regular television. I think when the Sci-Fi Channel launched in the early 90s, they had it for a while. And they did do... A uh, two-night miniseries in, I think, 95. And I cannot remember for the life of me who the actor what they put in the, in the lead role. But I know that Roy Thinnis plays David Vincent uh, in a cameo role. And it's kind of implied that, that it, the, it's, the miniseries isn't necessarily a reboot, but it's actually a continuation of what we had kind of seen in the 60s. Uh, I know that it came out on, on DVD, and I heard at one point that it was maybe being talked about on Blu-ray. Um, look it up if you can. It's a fun series. I had watched all the first season, and I think I got started on the second season, and then, gosh, that was years ago, I got sidetracked. So now, just thinking about it, I was like, I want to 
want to watch that. I asked Carla and she hadn't seen it, so that's something I think she'd enjoy because she loves that old stuff like that. So, yeah, um, I'd like to see it. I am aware of it, but didn't know any of this detail. So it, it's fun. If you love 1960s television and science fiction, yeah, it's a lot of fun. And you see a lot of familiar faces from people like, uh, you know, Peter Graves, I know, and Ed Asner, and, you know, a lot of familiar faces for us older folk who remember growing up with them. Uh, on television. The other series he created was Branded. Now, this is a Western with Chuck Connors. After the, the Rifleman ended, he played Branded, he played in Branded, and I forget his character's name, but basically he's a soldier who's accused of being a coward, but he's kind of set up and he gets kicked out of the army, and of course, then he's you know blacklisted wherever he goes. But he he's trying to clear his name and and getting caught up in you know various Western adventures. And it only ran for two seasons. But all right, this is where I I might reveal too much information. But as a kid, I had a reel-to-reel tape recorder. Brandon played on our local ABC affiliate uh, weekday mornings. And it has one of those catchy 1960s theme songs. And I used to sing the theme song. No, I'm not going to do it here. But uh, I used to sing it and I actually recorded it. And uh, I have vivid memories of my mom getting a kick out of that. And then telling my telling me to sing for my dad. And my dad not being nearly as amused as my mom was. Branded is a show, too, that's been kind of forgotten over the years. And it only ran for two seasons. So it doesn't have that magical... 100 episode mark which is probably why the invaders doesn't get played very much it's another fun show that that for me takes me back to my childhood i loved chuck connors and the riflemen so i love old westerns old tv westerns from the 60s and branded is is a fun one again totally opposite from the genre but i mean that just shows how you know versatile larry cohen could be of course prior to doing it's alive he did black caesar In 1973. Yeah, so before we get into that, I just want to say sort of in that transition between television and movies, he was writing screenplays, and I mean, he is the king of low budget. I mean, he, I don't know how far he squeezes that budget to make it look higher budget, but he's definitely low budget. I think Roger Corman might be the the king, so maybe Larry Cohen's like the prince, the heir apparent. He he wrote a screenplay, uh, El Condor written around sets that had already been built for another movie. That's the kind of guy he is. Finally, though, he, the first movie he directed was actually called Bone in 1972 with uh, Yafet Koto and Fred Williamson, and he directed it himself because he, quote, was sick of people ruining his scripts. From then on, he became quite the auteur, writer, director, producer. Yeah, so it's interesting, as I was looking through his his... Uh, other credits and kind of what he did in between the It's Alive films and you know, stuff that certainly we talk about in, in in the genre. I mean, after the second film and prior to the third, he did uh, Q in 1982. He did The Stuff in 1985, which I don't remember the stuff at all in the 1980s, but I have since seen it. Uh, and I know it's become kind of a cult favorite now, but for some reason, I don't remember it being talked much about in the 1980s. Now, we'll talk a little bit more about this later, but he also did a return to Salem's Lot, and I've got a few words to say about that film. The last thing he did, it's been a while, Larry Cohen is still with us. The last thing he did, I believe, was Masters of Horror in 2006, um, an episode called Pick Me Up, which I don't know that I've seen that one. I've seen some of the Masters of Horror, but I haven't seen all of them. 
Oh, and uh, Maniac Cop. He wrote the original uh, Maniac Cop as well. Again, I don't think it was a hit, big hit in 88, but became a, a kind of a cult favorite. Video with the video. sequels. And yeah, and with all the sequels. So Larry Cohen's, I think, not necessarily a name like Roger Corman that people all talk about as much. But then when you start to look at his credits, you realize that you've seen a lot more of his stuff than you realize. He was here in Kansas City uh, in the summer of 2016 at uh, Kansas City Crypticon. For some reason, that particular... uh, It was my first time going to Crypticon. It was very crowded, very hot in that room. Uh, It was before they expanded. And I, I just I didn't necessarily connect who Larry Cohen was when I saw him. He was sitting at a table all by himself. And yeah, so stupid me. I'm I, I get you know starstruck when I see the million dollar man Ted DiBiase, the wrestler, two tables down, and go up and have a conversation with him. And I remember telling myself, I, you know, I need to go back and see who that Larry Cohen. And I never got back there. And now I'm kicking myself. I regret not having an opportunity. He was there, a perfect opportunity to go up and say some kind words and ask a question. And one of those missed opportunities that I regret now. A couple of comments that Larry's philosophy on filmmaking, I guess. He says he never thought making movies was hard as long as he was in control. Again, him wanting to direct so he'd be in control. He was never too worried about directing. He thought if it didn't work out, he could always go back to writing. And he seems, he has a definite style that he talks about in the commentaries, very improvisational. I mean, I get the impression his screenplays are more like roadmaps, perhaps. Uh, and especially I'm sure we'll talk about when Michael Moriarty is in the third movie. He developed the, these this roster of actors that enjoyed that style. They got along real well. They liked the improvisational. And you'll see, you know, people turning up over and over in, in the movies. He seemed to like that. He, he treats it, he likes the solitary aspect. Uh, I mean, over and over again, he said... Like writing is something he can do by himself. He doesn't have to count on anyone else. He can just sit down and do it. And he described the writing process for him as he's just a stenographer. He sees the movie in his head and he's simply writing out what he sees. Take that for what it's worth. We we see the results of this process and we're going to be talking about it. And I think he, he, he does that very well in the first two films. Uh, when we get to the third film... I, I think he veered a little from his, from what worked well for him, and I think that's why, at least again, a little foreshadowing here, why the third film is is the, certainly the least of the trilogy. Yes, I think we're in agreement this episode. I don't think we'll be making a case for our rankings of the three movies. No, I, I don't think so. You and I have talked a little bit, and I think we're kind of in sync. So I guess you know, let's want to, let's dive into let's the first dive film. In. And I want to give my little history with It's Alive because I am very, very fond of this movie. I did see it in theaters when it was released in uh, 1973, right? 74. 74. 74. I remember going to the Chief Theater. I've talked about that before. That's a theater I saw many of these movies we talk about when I was growing up. The television ad for this was just brilliant. It's simple and sweet and short. If you saw that... You wanted to see the movie. Because all they show is the claw. And, and the tagline is just so great. There's only one thing wrong with the Davis baby. It's alive. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's yeah. just fantastic. And I remember uh, the milk scene. I remember that distinctly watching it. It doesn't hold up as much as my 11-year-old memory makes it to be, but it's still a pretty effective scene 
I was scared by this movie. It, it's always lived in my mind. And I think there are aspects of it, even now with an adult perspective, that it's still a pretty chilling movie, if not physically scary, jump scary, but definitely creepy. And There's a creepy neat factor to it. Yeah, I, I would agree. And it, I agree, too, on the trailer. I did not go see it. I, I, I'm a little younger than you, and also I was much more sheltered. So <laughs> I, I never went to a horror movie with my with my mom and dad, uh, and I didn't have anybody that would, would take me. So I, you know, 1970s, nope, never did it in the theaters, and I didn't start seeing horror movies in the theaters until the 80s, uh, and honestly, mid-80s probably. So, But I do remember the It's Alive trailer when it would come on television. It didn't terrify me as much, as the Devil's Reign trailer did, which I think came out in 75, I would actually get scared of that trailer and would, and would scream for the TV to channel to be changed. <laughs> um, and Mom would have to go run and change the channel real quick. But I do remember the It's Alive trailer. And of course, then watching it again on the Blu-ray. It, yeah, really good marketing. And really, the trailer for It Lives Again is almost identical in many ways to the, to the first trailer. You know the marketing on that was 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 really good. Now, I, for me, the first time viewing of It's Alive was uh, in the 1980s when I worked at the video store, uh, um, which would be 1988. Duncan's Movie Magic, no longer no longer there, but I could rent whatever I wanted, and of course I would rent tons of sci-fi and horror stuff. Big shock. That's who I've always been. And uh, yes, I, I had the. Uh, Warner Brothers clamshell case with the green border. Yeah. That's the versions of It's Alive and It Lives Again, which I know that I saw It's Alive. I th- I'm pretty sure that I saw It Lives Again. I did not see the third film at that point. And I think it's because it just came out on video and was always checked out. I remember vividly the box, but I never actually uh, watched it until last week and um i don't think i was missing anything it was it was certainly yeah that's that's my experience with these films is i was a little later than you watching them and actually the ad campaign we talked about that was not originally part of the movie i am not clear on the timeline but the movie was actually sitting on the shelf for a while they had a regime change at warner brothers and the first group of executives that sort of you know let him make it they kind of lost interest in it and uh, when they had a regime change, the new executive was interested in the movie and took it. I, I don't remember his name. I'll probably. I think it was like seventy six. It. it was like a couple of years later, wasn't it? Right, but he yeah. he saw the movie, liked it, hired people to come up with that ad campaign, and they finally gave it a proper release, and it was very very successful. So I probably yeah remember the trailer from like seventy six, which would be about about right because I don't remember. I, Devil's Reign came out in 75, and so I remember vividly that trailer coming out. And I have memories of some other movie trailers, but uh, it, yeah, it's alive. I do remember that, so probably saw it in 76. So we haven't really talked about the story. We didn't do a, a synopsis. You want to kind of just summarize it for us, Richard? Tell us what it's about for those that don't know. We have Frank and Lenore Davis. They're having a baby. Turns out the baby isn't isn't normal. The, uh, it's very big. It's very big. The delivery turns out to be rather graphic. The baby comes out, and you hear screams, and and Frank goes back to see what's going on with his wife, 
and basically sees a murder scene. Uh, all of the the doctors are they're screaming. The ones that are I think they're most of them are dead. I think one of them was still alive. Maybe uh, it, there's blood everywhere. Lenore is is strapped in. She's tied into this because she it was a big baby and they wanted to make sure she didn't move. And then all of a sudden, like two other attendants, you know, pull him out and. Then of course we find out. Well, the baby's gone. The, not only did they the baby get delivered, it crawled out an air vent, and we see that it's already somehow left the hospital and is kind of lurking in the bushes, watching when when Frank leaves a little bit later. What essentially this is kind of a in many ways uh, formulated like a kind of a classic monster flick. You've got a monster on the loose, and it's it's going about killing random people. You yes, know, people pursuing it. People pursuing it, and, and they do what mostly happens in these movies. Let's kill it. <laughs> we don't want to capture We don't want to study it. We need to kill it. And that's pretty much, I mean, it's a kind of a classic monster flick from that point forward. The interesting thing about that, though, is the conflict, I think, between the parents. And these movies all have it to a certain extent. One parent, it's our child. I don't care if it's a monster. It just needs love. And the other one, you know, realizes the monster it is and wants to destroy it. So that dynamic, I think, is... Kind of interesting in all three of the movies. The best here, I believe. Yeah, l- l- the the uh, the mom Lenore certainly. She's she's had that motherly instinct. She's like, you know, no, it's a baby, and and Frank is like, well, no, it's a monster. As the movie progresses, he begins to see that you know, yeah, there is a baby in there somewhere, and that does have kind of a, a natural tendency to want to be with its its mom and, and, and to a lesser degree the dad, but it knows who the dad is, and there is some some parental well not from the baby, but the the baby's got this the natural instinct to go to mom and dad. And unfortunately anything that gets in the way it's going to kill. There's a scene later in the movie where he meets his brother and doesn't kill the brother either. So there's a a, a little bit of for whatever reason it can sense who his family is. Anyone else is subject to being killed, but the family, you know, he's he's got a, a kind of a natural sense that, you know, these people are his family. He doesn't want to kill it. One of the things I really like about this movie is it's dated, but it's not. I mean, it takes place in the 70s, and I think a lot of the themes about why is this baby a monster, they don't really come out and say it, but it's pretty. You can put two and two together. Drugs and bad things when frank davis is in the waiting room smoking of course because in the 70s you could smoke in the hotel he and the other guys are laughing and talking about how they're slowly poisoning themselves and that's sort of a one of several clues they kind of drop indicating that yeah this baby is a product of all the bad things going on in the 70s so it's dated to that era because of that well they have that one little scene where one of the scientists or doctors or whatever just makes a reference to the drug that wasn't approved. We need to keep this hush-hush because we don't want to basically get found out that we were giving a drug that wasn't approved. Just find the baby and kill it. Eliminate it, you know, get rid of the evidence kind of thing. Remember that scene? It was like in a hallway when scientist or doctor or executive was talking to the other. It's a very short scene, you Gosh, know, I can't have I'm so you're saying there was more of a clear explanation well, specifically they, what it, they they imply that yeah there was oh. a drug hmm. and that it wasn't approved it needed to be off the market they never said well you know Lenore took it 
Uh, but that's the implication is that, yeah, she took a drug during pregnancy and that's what caused the mutation. And in the second movie, they expand on that a little bit. There's a reference to where it isn't so much just automatically taking the drug. It's a chemical makeup of the of the mother in conjunction with the drugs, which is why not everyone who's taking the drugs is, is having the mutated babies. But that's how they're able to, and we'll talk about this again in the second film, but that's how they're able to pinpoint, well, okay, this woman's pregnant. Oh, right, and, right, right. And this, you know, she took the drug. But now they don't really explain how they knew her chemical makeup. What They didn't explain it, what was special. But that's what they were. That's how they were able to pinpoint okay. who was pregnant and who would be having a mutant baby is because, well, yep, yeah, they took the drug and whatever they're they're about their chemical makeup or you know metabolism whatever they knew that that's okay they've got that secret element that mixed with the drugs is going to result in a mutant baby huh i've always glossed over that point i guess and that's a pretty big point but i think in my mind it works better if you don't know why you know i mean it could well, be and, any and number of yeah, horrible things going on it's a random scene i mean they kind of explain it but then they never really talk about it in the rest of the film it's just kind of Here's a brief minor explanation. It's implied. Let's move on. Yeah. And in the 70s, the the, the brother you mentioned, Chris Davis, the, the first child from Frank Lenore, his room, you know, has peace sign wallpaper. And it's just, this movie drips of the 70s. I like that. And again, it's not in a way that dates it, but it, it ties it to an era. And I think it's very much rooted in that era, era what is happening with it. And I think that's something Larry Cohen has done pretty well over all the years, is his movies do reflect sort of what's going on in the consciousness at at the time. Well, let's talk about the cast a little bit as we're talking about these characters. You've got John Ryan playing uh, Frank, and uh, he did lots of TV work. Closest thing to doing anything genre-related on the big screen, he had a, a part in Future World, which was the kind of ill-fated sequel to Westworld. He passed away in, in uh, 2007 at the age of 70, so he's no longer with us. Unfortunately, a lot of this cast as, uh, of these films have, have since passed. Did you notice how he died? Um, you know, I, I did not see how he died. I did make notes on some of the others, and well, I don't know. Yeah, in the commentary, Larry Cohen mentioned that John Ryan was actually a classmate of his in college, and anyway, was, became one of A his. lot of the cast is in a lot of Larry Cohen's right, films. Right. So there's a lot of friendships going on yeah, there. Yeah, but he died in a helicopter crash making a movie, and I don't remember what it was, but that was pretty horrific death. Uh, 2007. I, was a, I immediately thought no, it was Twilight, Twilight, Twilight Zone. Yeah, yeah, no, no. Okay, yeah, that's kind of that. Well, that's sad, yeah. I mean, there's actually, as I was going through uh, through these, there's some of these uh, actors have, that kind of passed away at, at younger age. Now, Sharon Farrell played the uh, the wife, Lenore. Uh, I recognize her. She's done lots of television work uh, in the 60s and 70s and 80s. And I remember her specifically from an episode of The Six Million Dollar Man, uh, Stranger at Broken Fork, where Steve Austin loses his memory and she's running like a home for the uh, uh, you know the handicapped, and the local townspeople don't want them there because they think they're freaks. And the, the scene where you know Steve Austin is helping, and then of course has his arm ripped open, and then wires come sticking out of his arm, and he doesn't know that he's bionic. It's from one of the first seasons of the show, and when I think that show was at its best, 
Andrew Duggan played a character called The Professor. He's in the second movie, and I don't know if he pl- if it's the same character in both films. He doesn't have a... I don't think he had a big part in this film. Nonetheless, I mean, he is a character actor that, if you've seen television from this time period, you, you saw him in some role or another. He was in lots of television work. Uh, he was in episodes of The Invaders, uh, The Big Valley. I remember him from that. Wonder Woman, Bionic Woman. His last movie was a return to Salem's Lot. He was in quite a few different other Larry Cohen productions, too. So... Guy Stockwell, who's a kind of a veteran actor, has a smaller role. He plays Bob Clayton, the Frank's boss. He's got basically one scene in the movie. A kind of a kind of a jerk, basically. I mean, it's like, oh, you had a you had a problem with your your child. Well, we don't like this publicity. We're going to fire you, but I'm not going to tell you to your face. I'm going to wait till you leave the office and then tell the secretary to pack up his stuff and send it to his house. He did lots of TV work, roles like uh, Thriller, um, Arc 2, the Saturday morning show that I love, Combat from the 60s. He was in the Fox series Werewolf. He died in 2002, at the age of 68, from diabetes. James Dixon, in the character of Lieutenant Perkins, who is in basically the only films he ever did were Larry Cohen films, so he must have been a good friend. And he is actually in all three films. Uh, it's never really explained why he's in all three films, other than because of his experience in this first movie of, of encountering the the baby, he becomes an expert, I guess. And so, like I know in the third movie, they call him up. Well, you have ex, you know, you have a history. That's kind of the second movie. The second movie, he's almost like working for the the bad right, guys right. rather than being a cop and then the third movie he's retired and then gets kind of called up and say well hey would you like to? and he plays the the character very differently in the third movie much more comical goofy like well the whole movie is yeah the, the, this well, this one he plays a very straightforward police officer and i think he only had one scene in it but here's my star trek connection one of the other police captains was played by michael ansara might not recognize him right off the bat, and it threw me because he is balding in this in this film. He wore a toupee in almost all of his movies. I never knew that. In this film, apparently, uh, his toupee was out to dry because he, <laughs> he decided not to wear one. And he admittedly did not look really good without it because he had very thinning hair. It, it made him look very different because uh, he usually played a very dashing, good-looking guy with a full head of hair. Uh, he was married to Barbara Eden for a period of time, and so that's why he pops up like in three episodes of I Dream a Genie. He pops up in the second season, first episode, he played the Blue Gin. was painted blue, and um, I think he was bald in that one. I don't think he had hair, but he had a turban on. So Now, yes, that's the Star Trek reference. He actually played the Klingon Kang, in the third season episode, Day of the Dove, which is one of the best of the series, and then came and played that character again in the 1990s in Star Trek Deep Space Nine as a much older Klingon, now actually looking like a Klingon. Uh, never really explained why he looked different, uh, other than we just assume that the augment virus that made the Klingons look human had made him go back to looking like a Klingon. And then he played Kang again in an episode of Star Trek Voyager called Flashback. Uh, 
uh, where he had a small role in, in the uh, the USS Excelsior encounters a Klingon ship where Kang is on board, kind of a thrown in for fun reference. And then he played another character on Deep Space Nine as well. So he he had several different Star Trek episodes to his credit. And if, you, if we want to do a Batman tie-in... Of course we do. Of course we do. He was the voice of Mr. Freeze on Batman the Animated Series. Going back a little bit as well, some 1960s uh, TV shows, he was in several episodes with uh, Irwin Allen. He was in Time Tunnel, Lost in Space. And even going a little further back, he was in Abbott and Costello Meet the Mummy. So a lot of cred there for Michael Ansara, and he has about uh, two minutes on screen in this film. So <laughs> it was a lot of fun to see him and know immediately, it was like, there's my Star Trek reference. Doctor Who, yeah, I don't have it this episode, but Star Trek, I had it. Yeah, fun cast in this one, which I think made the movie, for me, just seem almost when you have character actors that you recognize it elevates the movie and when you've got actors of better caliber even though the material may not be as good you know you've got good actors playing the roles and that can kind of elevate the movie sometimes well i have a question for you though in in any larry cohen movie the acting is usually a little off-putting for me and i don't i'm sure it's related to that improvisational style and i don't imagine that Larry Cohen was much of a people director, you know, telling them what to do. And well, he talks about that, just letting them do their thing. So I don't know if that makes them, their performances seem more natural and more realistic, which would be unusual because usually when you're acting, you're acting, you know, and that's a different type of reality that you're used to. Or are they, do they need more direction? But I mean, with Michael Moriarty, it's the worst. But even in this movie, just... It, that, did you know what I mean? That uh, it, it, it is a little a, off. Putting. It is a little off. Yeah, it is a little off. I think of Sharon Farrell, though, who, to me, that's a very real, natural performance. It's, But it's like the pain and the misery she's going through. It shows that's in, kind of... in scenes where normally I don't think you would see that or it wouldn't be the, the focus. So and I want to say that's, that's, that's some of her as an actress because that's... She has a style, and and that's what, again, that Six Million Dollar Man episode, she had just a very natural style in that episode, and other things that I've seen her in over the years, guest spots on various TV shows, I just, yeah, she always kind of doesn't have an air about her. She's just kind of the girl next door playing this part, and I think that comes out in this movie, and if she was given that extra leeway, then she just tapped into that and uh, made made a lot of the anguish that she's feeling, I think, very realistic. Do you know what I'm talking about, or am I just fixating on that? I mean... No, no, you're you're exactly right. The, these movies are, again, the first two, you know, go hand-in-hand hand together, and the third is its own little uh, interesting piece of work. But <laughs> the first two movies, specifically, yeah, the... the it's interesting, yeah. I mean, if, if you would have had actors or actresses that you wouldn't have recognized, then you would have said, oh, maybe this is just a low-budget production. But when you've got actors and actresses that you do know and they're acting in a kind of a natural style, it, it's kind of a combination. I think if, if Larry Cohen is giving that direction, they're just kind of tapping into who they are as people, not necessarily acting a character necessarily. They're being allowed to kind of just do their thing. So yeah, I would, I would agree. I think that comes across in 
uh, definitely the first two films. And you mentioned the the cast elevating a movie. There are two behind-the-scenes people that elevate this movie sky-high. First would be Rick Baker. This was one of his early movies. You don't see a lot of... He created the baby. You don't see a lot of it, and Larry Cohen talks a lot about it. I mean, that was on purpose. It's scarier if... You don't see, you know, what in the imagination is scarier. He, he well, I think if you look at the back of the Blu-ray, they've got a shot of the baby on the oh, back yeah, of the Blu-ray. You, you've seen it. And, and, you, and you look at it and you're like, I have to say, good work, considering it's an early part of his career, but a better approach of not showing a lot of it. Right. You see glimpses of it. It's in the shadows. And obviously there was limitations. It didn't have CGI. And it's not like you can put a little baby in a suit so and if you do too much work then it's going to come across as like a puppet or you know stop motion animation isn't necessarily the cheapest thing to do when you're working on a budget so i think what they did was the best approach use it sparingly using it in shadows because in all of these movies what's always some of the the weakest scenes is when the baby is attacking the adult and biting the neck and it's so obvious that yeah this is not a real real object this this is uh you know this is a a, a, a puppet or uh, a uh you know a figure that's just attached to the to the body and those are the scenes it's like in you know even as short as they do it it stands out as like yeah that's not real that's not real so i think the scenes that work best with the with the creature the baby is is like when it's in the sewers or when it's in the dark and the shadows because it's more implied than being kind of thrust into your face or when, when you don't see it at all i'm going to talk about that scene that i mentioned that is my i love that's the milk truck in the 70s they used to deliver milk to your front door and the driver is in the front seat reaching back into the storage area trying to find something and he's pulled into that area and you see his legs flailing behind him and then spilt milk but don't cry over it and starts running out of the back of the truck and it's a lot of milk and it's circling and going down the drain mm-hmm. in the street and then suddenly it starts turning red because blood is coming out and mixing with it don't see the baby at all there but that's the scene that sticks out to me that's the scene that terrified me when i was a kid well i think i think yeah i think rick baker did excellent work on that again for this coming in and very early in his career the baby came in different shapes and sizes there was a puppet there was a, a baby and there was a full-sized mask that i believe he wore and crawled around on his hands and knees for some oh shots. i didn't know that yeah yeah, yeah. well i mean because this comes just uh three years after he did octoman there's kind of some similarities between the octoman face and the baby kind of if you look at the structure of octoman and structure of the baby it's clear that there had to have been some some inspiration or some thought process the the mutated creature kind of going into how he created you know i've never heard or read anything where he talked about it how he created it'd be interesting to see if there was any inspiration by octoman or if that was just kind of what was in his brain at the time some of the other things he did uh, he had to one degree or another, and he was involved in the uh, the thing with two heads, Black Caesar, uh, Live and Let Die. I don't know what he did on that from a special effects perspective. You know, I'm trying to think that James Bond movies don't have a lot of special effects makeup work. The only thing in that movie, I mean, might have been if he did some of the makeup, just like some of the voodoo, maybe possibly. 
Uh, and I didn't know that he was attached to the exorcist, but he's credited or listed as having been involved somehow in, in the exorcist. Um, now, again, coming early on in his career, he might have just been an assistant or something, but I had never heard his name attached to the exorcist. Hmm. So that one kind of caught me off guard. But he's involved in these first two films, and, and I think that's, again, another reason why these first two films are several levels above the third film. Cohen said he wanted the baby to look something like the Star Child from 2001 A Space Odyssey, but with fangs and claws. Okay. So I think they kind of sort of achieved that. They, they, they did. They did. Yeah, now you think of that baby in 2001 A Space Odyssey, that would have changed that movie drastically. So, The other name we talked about uh, was Bernard Herrmann doing the score. And you may know more about this, but he had, I guess, had a falling out with Hitchcock after doing so many movies. And I think it was during Torn Curtain that they parted ways. And uh, Larry Cohen met him in London and they struck up a friendship. When Bernard Herrmann ultimately died and was living in the United States at the time, Larry Cohen had the, uh, not the funeral, but the reception or gathering or whatever with the family at his home, and his oh, wow. wife remained friends. Uh, in fact, he gave proceeds from, if I'm getting this right, proceeds from the soundtrack of the second movie he gave to Bernard Herrmann's wife, uh, because he had, her husband had created the score. Um, apparently, there's not a soundtrack from the first movie. It was lost. They did. There was one for the second, and I think the "It's Alive" theme that Bernard Herrmann created was has been used other places. But it's well, cause I think that that raises the movie to have a score by Bernard Herrmann. You know, that makes an open field scary. Well, because he had he had died in uh, 1975, so he had died before the second film came out. So they simply, I think, they used the music. Uh, I don't think he created anything specific for the second film. No, they, no, you know. no. Uh, Laurie Johnson, who I believe is a man, they referred to him as a he, was a friend of Bernard Herrmann, and he orchestrated or made new. But I believe in the second music movie the music was all composed by bernard herman just arranged by laurie johnson and then in the right. third one it was the theme maybe was used sparingly but yeah it pops up a few times but i, I actually liked the theme i mean of course oh, bernard yeah. herman does so many classic films from the day the earth stood still vertigo three worlds of gulliver mysterious island jason and the argonauts twilight zone psycho and the list goes on and on and on i've got a vinyl record downstairs that uh, is uh, that we actually got uh, in Pittsburgh at uh, Jerry's Records. It's a great piece of all of his various, you know, sci-fi fantasy uh, elements over the years. So, yeah, legendary. And, and sadly, he passed away just, well, after this film was finished and probably before it really became more uh, mainstream, uh, he died in uh, 1975 at the age of 64 of a heart attack very suddenly. So... Again, another death very early on. Well, what else you got to say about It's Alive? Of the three films, it's my favorite. I certainly enjoyed it. It's been a very long time since I'd seen it. And uh, I'm glad I revisited it. It's a fun film. You know, it's uh, never... It doesn't aspire to be anything more than it is. It's just a fun creature feature, essentially. It's it's uh, got some creepy elements. Not necessarily super scary anymore, but you know it's it's a fun fun flick to put on and 
and uh, watch on a Saturday night. And you can watch it hand in hand with the the next film we're going to talk about. I think because it's feels very much like a continuation of the story and, oh. and, and definitely a good double feature. And then you can stop there. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. And I guess let's just conclude then by saying how the movie ends, and that is that. There's a news report that another one of these babies has been born in Seattle. Well, he call he calls in on the uh, he talks to, uh, to oh right, right yeah right. to uh, to uh, Perkins and because he has the mom and dad in the back seat and and he says uh, you know well you know another one's been born and was it Seattle yep, or yeah Seattle and, that, and so that's the stinger that's sort of the twist ending and that does take us right in definitely a cliffhanger in a way because you're like oh well the story is not done yet so. A uh, good ending to the film and, and a good uh, setup for the continuation of the story, which we would see four years later. We'll come back and talk about that in just a moment. The It's Alive Baby is back again. Only now there are three of them. It lives again. We're back, Richard, with a sequel that Larry Cohen describes as one that advances the relationships of the first movie. He had a bigger budget. He had more locations. He had helicopters. They got to travel, pay for hotels, a bigger cast. He's very proud of the progress they were able to make with the sequel. Do we think that that was money well spent? I think it's a really good continuation. It lives again, done in 1978. Definitely felt very much like, you know, a, a it was done almost at the same time as the first one. It had the same feel. It had, uh, you know, a couple of the same cast. Yeah, I mean, it, I, you know, it. you maybe see a glimpse or two more of the baby, but again, used sparingly. It has the same tone as the first film. Uh, I think, I think, yeah, I think it was, it was a... You say baby, Richard, but actually there's babies. This and is that, true. we talked about the advertising campaign of the first one. That was the big thing on this one. This time, there are three of them. Yes, yeah. And really, the uh, when you watch the the trailer, even it is very similar to the trailer for the first one. So um, the marketing is similar on this one. Uh, it's kind of like, I guess, the proverbial, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. He just kind of kept things going and kept things being very reminiscent of the first film. It adds something, though, that I really, really like, and that's the birthday cake with the claw mark in it. It does, and I, yes. Every time I watch that movie, I wait and wait and wait for that scene to come. And it's pretty late in the movie because it's a mm-hmm. quite a while before the baby gets out in this one. And it's and not as effective as the milk truck scene was in the first one. But I just think as sort of an iconic representation of the movie, I think it was very clever for them to put that birthday cake in the ads. Yeah, it was it. That was fun. Yeah, that was fun. We don't know how much time passes between the first and second, but not much. Not much. Enough that we've got John Ryan back as as Frank Davies, and and although no mention really of his wife, not implied that they broke up or divorced, but his wife's just not featured in this film. But he's basically hit the road, and he's working with uh, a group who are trying to save the babies because what's happened is that 
there's been numerous babies that have been born, and this is now becoming um, a bit of an epidemic, I guess. If it's if you've got numerous babies being born, and there it is mentioned at one point that they're now just killing the babies. They talk briefly about how they can, they kind of know as far as like the, the the makeup of the woman, who and they know that she's taking the drug. They they know ahead of time that she's going to have a mutant baby. So they're prepared, basically, and and they kill him as soon as the, the baby is born. Frank and the others are, are trying to essentially to save the babies because they are, you know, Frank saw that there is a connection between the baby and, and the parents. And he realizes that these are these are babies. They're they're mutated, but they deserve to live how they would live interspersed in society is not really touched on very much in this film. It's more so they're in the this scientific investigation stage of kind of what makes these babies tick. But Frank is is trying to do good and that's when he as the movie starts out, he reaches out to the Scott family, uh, Eugene and Jody Scott and says, you know, hey, we know this is happening. Kind of creepy though, the way it starts off, oh, right? Yeah. He goes to to a to a party, baby to shower. the baby shower, and and he's just kind of hanging out, you know. And uh, he's the last one. There. He's the last one there, and neither Eugene or Jody know who he is. They seem kind of calm. I don't know if I was in that situation. There's a stranger that neither you know my wife or I know. I'm gonna be like, who the heck are you? Mm-hmm. Can you please leave? You know, I mean, it's kind of funny. But then, of course, he reveals who he is and and explains, you know, kind of why he's there. And and then, of course, you know, as as the movie progresses, we find out that, you know, there's 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 a few others, two others that are in. uh, uh, I don't want to say captivity, but they they are. I mean, they're they're in cages. They're being studied. And we find out that I, I think, of course, you know. That Frank is wanting to do good work here, but not necessarily Dr. Perry, who is played by Andrew Duggan, which, again, I don't know if it's implied that he's playing the same character from the first film or if it's just by chance because Andrew Duggan knew Larry Cohen. He just was cast in a different yet similar role. Uh, I don't know if it was intended that they're the same character, but his intentions are... A little suspect. I mean, he's he certainly views them more as creatures, and what you know, what can you know, what the next evolution of humanity. Yeah, that's interesting. He claims that they're a new race of humanity that will finally eclipse our own, and I just find that as odd because you know when you get a, a generation that's smarter, or even if they have bigger heads, and you assume they have bigger brains, or they are born with thumbs that they can text better with or something you know that's an evolution <laughs> but when you see a monster baby do you automatically think oh yes there's our next evolution yeah i mean i i don't wouldn't want that to be our next evolution. well and that's a question too is this is this drug was it intended was it given to these women with the intent to create a a new race or was it just a you know, oh well, now we kind of stumbled on this because it never really explains. Yeah, and you know what what this drug was that they were taking, why they were taking it, and was this intended side effect or was this just something that they lucked upon? And it's like, oh well, gosh, this is a good side effect, and hey, we're creating a new race, and it's superior to us. Again, with the the point about the drug, and the more I think about it, does that all tie into the third? movie the people that go to the island is that are they saying those are the people that created those drugs well because in the third movie you do have the the one character um 
Oh, gosh, I, I don't think I listed it here, but he's um, the one guy that goes to the island hunting them. He does talk about that, yeah, I mean, it's... And it's, they show his product. And yes. A couple times they bring it up. Yeah, it's it's his company that it, created this drug, and, and so... And they've been banned because of... And he's hoping to kind of reverse and, and kind of like, you know, if we can get rid of these, then all the bad press will go away, and we can start sending the drug out again. So that would seem to support that that they weren't creating these these creatures intentionally, yeah. that it just happened to be a byproduct of this drug, and what this drug was supposed to be doing in the first place is never explained, I don't think, in any of the three yeah. films. So I'm still trying to reconcile how I missed that point that it was specific, but I think maybe it's because, you're right, it was talked about in hallways, and there are the people behind the scenes that n- maybe... No, but I don't think that's shared with anybody because no. they're again no. like in the first movie. In the second one, there's time for their speculating. They say vitamins, supplements, vegetarian diet. I bet that's what they'll say caused this. So at least the people going through it don't really know the, if why I were, they're having a monster baby. The two characters in the hallway, and I, I wish I could remember their names, but the one guy. It's the only scene he's in the whole time, and he's a character actor that I've, I've seen in other films. He's talking to a guy, and that that guy is is one of those who shows up and trying to essentially get the baby. He's the one at the end of the the first movie where Frank throws the baby on him. That guy is in a hallway talking to somebody else, like an executive or something. That executive, that's the only scene he's in in the whole film. But explaining, and then that—that's why that other character goes off to try to find the baby, because basically he's doing what his boss told told him to do: eliminate the problem. So, I guess, so that would again. I'm thinking now. So, if they're wanting to eliminate the problem, they didn't want the babies to exist. So that Doctor Perry, he in the second film, he's he's finding that this is a, I guess, a byproduct then of the mistake of the drug. He's thinking that, you know, now we've got a whole new race. So I guess that's not the intent of the drug. But maybe it just, in his mind, it's just a happy byproduct of, of this of this drug combined with these women are creating a new, you know, species, which is, yeah, definitely kind of wackadoodle mad scientist thinking there. And it, and it doesn't end well for him. In usual mad scientist form, it never ends well. And, yeah, the, the babies, uh, one of the babies ends up getting getting out and ends up killing him immediately i really like the way the movie starts it's different from the first where you know right away you're in the delivery room and the baby comes out but now the characters frank davis and the audience as well we know what's going to happen so the fact that there's some build up before she goes to the hospital and has the baby i think it builds suspense in this movie because you know what's coming and they don't give it to you right away I, i i like that And I like, there's some little points to the plot, like um, they're going to call Frank Davis when she goes into labor. Well, she does, and they do, but he's out of his room, so no one answers the phone. Then when he goes back in the room, he calls them, but they've already gone to the hospital, and they miss connecting with each other. So I think it's, I think it, I like that buildup. I like the suspense before we start seeing some action yeah and and, uh, of course when they get to the hospital then you see they're a lot more prepared this go around there's like 1,000 police officers and uh, is it uh, Dr. Mallory I guess the one who's who's there he's listed as Mr. Mallory on IMDb but he was a doctor in the movie Uh, 
played by John Marley, the one who, mm, right. you know, he's got, okay, we got, you know, forceps, we got uh, scalpel, and oh, here's my gun that I'm going to put underneath, you know. They're prepared to, to kill it right away as it comes out, and, and they have all the police officers there in case it gets loose. So It's interesting you mentioned the police. Uh, Larry Cohen says in the um, commentary that there's too many police. They filmed that in Tucson. It's one of the locations they got to go to, and the city apparently was very generous in offering resources to them, and uh, they provided practically all their police force. So that's one thing he said that he doesn't like about these movies. And if he could have changed, he would have not had so many police but at that hospital. I, I agree that there was way too many police. I was like, it was like, wow, that's, it's a baby. And yeah, it's going to get, you know, even if it gets away, it's like, if you've got that many officers and they're, you know, you've got a baby that's running loose and they can't kill that baby, you know, they need to go back and get some training or something. It was kind of, that was a little overboard. Let's talk about some of the cast. So you've got the Scott, Eugene and uh, Jody Scott, the Scott family. Frederick Forrest plays the character of Eugene. I think he was kind of a jerk, I think, all the way through. I mean, he's just kind of... It's clear that he and Jody have had some problems, and the baby maybe was thought that it was going to fix the problems, but, you know, Eugene is wanting... Like, as soon as the baby's born, he's, you know, they're dealing with this mutant baby and you know well it's time to get frisky it's time to have some fun and she's like no and then he gets mad yeah he you know you don't really feel sympathetic for for his character uh a very much a different father type character than you than uh, frank was now he was in uh, a variety of roles lots of uh character actor roles he was in some films like apocalypse now and lonesome dove do you know that that's our Dark Shadows connection for this episode? Frederick Forrest. I guess I don't know that. Aha! I got you. I got you. Yes. In his credits, he uh, he appeared in episode 137 of Dark Shadows in 1967, playing the Blue Whale customer. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I can't believe I forgot that. <laughs> So there you go. That's that's yes. That's that's a thin well, connection. Congratulations! But... I'm proud of you. Yes. Yeah, so there we go. I thought you'd get a kick out yes. of that. Yes. Kathleen Lloyd uh, as Jody Scott. She's a character actress. I recognized her from some stuff. Lots of TV work. Uh, she was in The Sixth Sense, uh, The Twilight Zone, The Car. She was also in the movie Missouri Breaks. So uh, you've probably seen her at one point or another on television. Of course, we mentioned John Ryan is back as Frank. We've got John uh, Marley as, I'm going to say, Dr. Mallory. Lots of interesting and TV credits, but he was in just about every horror anthology series. He appeared in Suspense, Inner Sanctum, One Step Beyond, Thriller, and The Twilight Zone. <laughs> and maybe Alfred Hitchcock, too. Uh, he was also in Kolchak, The Night Stalker, and uh, he was also in The Godfather. You know who he was in The Godfather? Do you remember? I believe he was the Hollywood executive that woke up with the horse's head in his bed. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he is. Now that you come to think, yeah. Yeah, he was. That that was correct. And then again, I mentioned that Andrew Duggan is, is Dr. Perry and James Dickin, Dixon is Lieutenant Perkins again. Uh, this time, working for the bad guys uh, in, in quest to eliminate the babies. I think this movie is a little slicker, a little glossier than It's Alive. I mean, I think you can see that there's more money in it. I think it's got more humor, and uh, he, I, I, I use that very loosely. I mean, it's not like ha-ha moments, but just kind of funny. Again, it's because we know of what's 
going to happen. So at this facility in Los Angeles where they're holding the babies, you know, there's a sign like drive carefully, children at play. That's kind of funny. And then at the pool, there's, and you know, this was a former academy, a private academy that's closed and that's the facility they've used. So there's a swimming pool. There's a sign that says swim at your own risk. And of course he takes pains to show that because you know later someone is going to be attacked in the pool so i, I those things i think I just swimming think in funny. that pool itself it, looked a little yeah, sketchy at best it was a little on the green side yes. the little things like that i think there were i think that adds a little humor to the story i would agree i, I you know it uh very well I mean, it has the overall look just looks so much like the the first film but yeah a little bit more polished Speaking, uh, I, would, I would agree with that. Speaking of the swimming pool, uh, in the commentary, Larry Cohen a couple of times mentioned Val Luton, how he was going for that, where, you know, it's more to the imagination. And he mentioned the swimming pool scene in Cat People, and the scene in It Lives Again was supposed to be his, you know, tribute to Val Luton and all of that. And I think it's even gets a little more graphic than Val Luton did. But that's if there's any similarities there, they were intended. Uh, and Cohen said he would like to have had a, a shot from the bottom of the pool looking up with the baby swimming across the top. <laughs> that kind of... They would have... <laughs> that would have been awesome. Been well, speaking of swimming pool, I, I read that the... Because the opening credits were done over a swimming pool. Right. It was that pool. So, it's not, Which, I had read that it was his own swimming pool. It is. Okay. That, I was just going to say, a lot of these scenes were filmed at his house. Okay. Uh, he must have some wonderful house. He talks about it all the time and he talks about how... Um, you know, making low-budget movies that are successful affords you a house like this. Yeah, I see the that maybe elevates this then because I'm not sure that Roger Corman ever filmed anything in <laughs> his own house. It's true. Uh, I Chris Christopher Mim. You know, I know films stuff in right, his own house, right. so we can tell Christopher's like you're doing exactly what Larry Cohen did. You know, you're in good company. Yeah, he didn't do uh, all. I mean, all of it, but a lot of it he did, and he always points it out. I recommend you watch the commentary. It's interesting. He's a great guy to listen to talk but well, i want to see this king cohen i mean it, yeah it's, it's i remember a, you, i remember it being discussed and i forgot about it and you mentioned it the other day and it's been kind of like i need to put that on my list yeah it's pretty much you know strict it goes it's a filmography i mean it goes through each movie you know it's more that guides the movie more than like his story or anything but he's there all the time adding his comments and it's it's worth seeing especially now that we've seen these i recommend that everyone watch that as the movie wraps up, you know, eventually one of the babies gets out and goes on a, on a terror and is killing people left and right. Got, you know, murders in the swimming pool and the the police show up and essentially, you know, not as much of a cliffhanger as, as, the, uh, as the first film had where, you know, it's implied that we've got, you know, uh, oh, this wasn't just one baby, now there's multiple babies. But it does kind of leave the opening there... There's going to be, you know, more. I guess that that they're still trying to to reach out to prospective couples, and and continue to try to, I guess, head this off, and try to to prevent the the murder of the babies. So it's kind of implied that you know the 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 saga will continue on that level, and we don't really get that by the third film. There's obviously been a little bit of time that has lapsed, you know, between one film and the other. There's nine years. I don't get that there's been nine years in real time necessarily 
but there has certainly been some time that's happened between the the second and the third film and it seems like the strategy maybe has changed a little bit by the time we get to the third one so that's why i like this one gives promise that maybe we're going to see another chapter in in this type of story we get in the first two films and unfortunately it's dropped and we don't don't see that and i don't know if it was just maybe the time that had lapsed in between and larry cohen decided to go something different with the third movie but i wish we would have continued i wish the third film would have been more like the first two yeah i'm trying to think though what they could have done with it to make it different i think they could have done you could have done something similar to what you had in the third film if it would have been done in the same style of the first two movies and would have kind of picked up on the trying to to study the babies and you know as opposed to what we see in the third film where they're just kind of they really they're just considered creatures i wish we would have kind of picked up more on the now these really are human beings they're mutated we need to be you know, may, they may not be able to survive in society, but we need to do something with them. I think you could have done, you could have done a version of the story that we see in the third movie, but done in the style as it was done in the first right. two, and it would have been much better. Well, and on the a, a pure superficial level, the first two films are basically very dark and moody. You know, the third one takes place on an island. It's bright sunshine. You know, it's just a whole different. Again, not my idea for an island getaway. <laughs> you know, Dr. Moreau's right, Island is down right. the street. You got the uh, alive babies. This is a bad neighborhood. I, I I need to go to a different island. Anything else then about the, the second one? We've already started talking about the third, but did we no, neglect I, I, anything? You know, I, uh, I liked it almost as much as the first one. I think the first one had just a few more elements that elevated, but uh, I enjoyed it. And again, I... I I'm fairly certain I saw this back in the late 80s. I remembered it a lot less than I did the first one. Uh, and I, too, do remember the, the clamshell case and the green border. So I, that's why I'm, I'm pretty sure that I saw it. But then I haven't seen either of these films since 1988. So it had been a very long time since I'd seen them. And uh, uh, glad that I had a chance to revisit these two. Yeah, and I'd watch them. I, I do watch them both, even though I apparently forget huge plot points but i i do watch them every couple of years oh so. yeah i'd watch i'd watch both of these again yeah sooner than uh whatever you know two or three decades have lapsed in between remember the babies they found a place to put them now they're growing up and they want to come home and they're hungry It's Alive, Part 3, Island of the Alive. Don't see it alone. Before we get into the third movie, I wanted to say a couple more things about uh, Larry Cohen. And you may have gotten the impression that he's, not in a bad way, but he's he's very proud of what he's accomplished. He's a, a little bit full of himself. He several times takes responsibility for things that I'm not really sure he was quite the groundbreaker that he thinks for example yeah. we get a lot of point of view shots from the babies that have the like double vision yeah he claims he pioneered that and that never before had there been a point of view from the monster and i find that hard to believe mm. i i can't think of one earlier but surely it's alive was not the first movie to use point of view 
whether um, it was or wasn't is sort of irrelevant. He claims that it was. Uh, you could, uh, there's some shots from Creature from the Black Lagoon that are looking up at the at the girl. Now I guess you know you're not seeing blurry water or stuff, right. you know. But yeah, I would I would yeah I'm suspicious that the other thing I'm suspicious in uh, the movie he made after It Lives Again was Q the Winged Serpent in 1982. I saw that. I've only seen it once. Yeah, I did not like it. I no. thought it was pretty bad. He claims that critics called it the best giant monster movie since King Kong. I find that very, very suspicious okay. as well. If they're going, <laughs> if they're comparing it to the 76, 76 King, King Kong, Kong uh, yeah, perhaps. Yes, perhaps. <laughs> not a lot of monster movies came out that six-year period of time. Also, before It's Alive, it's Alive 3, Island of Alive, he made a movie called Special Effects. I remember that from being on video. I don't think I've ever seen it. I can picture the box. And he made the stuff that you mentioned earlier. Again, I saw the stuff back in the day. I don't remember caring for it very much. I've never seen it since. I do want to revisit it because it did seem to have a, a surge in popularity. But, uh, I, I saw it about 10 years ago. It was my first time viewing it. It was all right. Yeah. It, it's not something I would go back and watch a second time. And I think, wasn't it, the gist of it was sort of a comment on consumerism and yes. products and all that? Yeah. Well, that is something that carries through to Island of the Alive, uh, which I guess we could start talking about now. It's Alive 3, Island of the Alive. 1987, it was primarily a direct-to-video uh, sequel, although it did have a limited theatrical release. I vividly remember the cover of the box. Uh, I did not see it back in the day, and this was a first time viewing for me. And uh, yeah, I don't see a second viewing coming up anytime soon. And uh, me, having been seeing the first two and loving them so much, when this came out on video, I snatched it up immediately to watch it. I had not seen it again until we watched it, or I watched it this week for the podcast. Well, it, written and directed again by Larry Cohen. Um, it, the movie, again, as we talked about, we're not quite sure exactly. It's never really stated how much time it passed between the second and third film. Probably about as much time as had passed in real life. I mean, it had been, what, nine years? That seems about right for things that are happening in the movie. I guess. I mean, the, the, the babies are still being born, which... The, so that's the part that, that was a little... Conf I mean, there's a lot about this movie that's confusing, but... <laughs> So if, you know, they know that the drugs are responsible for creating the babies and but so we are believe that this company has continued to to market this drug but then there's a reference because we see the 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 CEO or exec or somebody from the company who goes to the island looking for the babies and states that, you know, the, the the drug is off the market and they're wanting to get the drug back on the market. So obviously at some point it was discovered that the drugs were causing the mutation, kind of implied by that, um, and that they're wanting this drug to go back on the market, again, never explaining what this drug is supposed to be doing for the mothers in the first place. And I guess uh, how much time has the drug not been on the market? Because you have the Jarvis baby who is still a baby and it's kind of implied that the baby is not that old but um not really explained about how old it is i mean old enough that that steven and ellen the the parents have separated ellen's kind of gone into hiding 
and and Steven is kind of carrying on being the face of this whole thing. So the drug hasn't been off the market that long, because if the, the baby is still a baby, you know, she would have had to have, like, at some point, it's like in the last year to year and a half, maybe the, you know, the baby uh, would have been born. I guess the next question is how much time actually passes during the course of this film. Right, I was going to say, there's another big time jump somewhere, and I can't pinpoint where exactly. Yeah, it's like all of a sudden, we, you know, at one point... Well, the movie... I guess let's let's get ahead, not get ahead of ourselves. The movie starts off in a courtroom. There's a hearing. What are we going to do with the Jarvis baby? And the the, the thing is, is, is Stephen Jarvis, is he afraid of his own son? If he's afraid of his own son, then the baby needs to be, you know, terminated. But if he's not, then that supports the theory that it's really is there's a human baby in there somewhere. And he's initially very hesitant to, to do it, but then he begins to see his his son and begins to say, well, you know, feel like, okay, this is a child. And all of a sudden, you know, begins to kind of connect with, with his child and ends up supporting his case that the child really is, you know, there is a human being in there somewhere and ends up supporting that they shouldn't be killed, which then you get the, the saying, well, we're going to put them on an island and let them just fend for themselves. Back up just a smidge, you say, you know, he's a human and not going to hurt anyone. He bends the bars on the cage, gets out, and then he just sort of lays on the judge's bench. I mean... Well, he, I, like he, he, bends, he bends the bars when his dad is being threatened. Okay. So he's coming to the defense of his dad. You know, so which kind of carries on what we've seen in the first two films that the baby will, you know, it's going to attack anything, but it knows who its parents are and won't, you know, and, and almost is protective. And I think that's why he, he does that. He, he, you know, breaks out and, and you know, then jumps up and but doesn't do anything. I know, he doesn't do anything. And the, and the, the judge, judge is right there. And, and maybe he senses good people, bad people, but that uh, there's a lot of innocent people that get killed in the first two films, so... I, I really like this setup, though, because I think it's a great way to start the movie, and I'm intrigued by what could happen with this. And, you know, they're thinking, well, where are we? can we put these babies? There must be some place on Earth where they won't hurt him, and he won't hurt anyone. And there's your concept. They dump him on an island. And then there's a big leap in time, because it's never really explained how much time passes between the, when the decision is made and, and when we actually get back to the island because now, as it's explained, the babies have aged. Is what five years? I guess is, is mentioned at some yeah, point. Yeah. I guess that's true. I'm thinking here five years, and they 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 accelerate very rapidly uh, to to the size of being a uh, a regular human. Obviously, they've hit puberty because now they can also uh, procreate and can nurse and do all of these things that none of us really needed to see in this in this uh, trilogy. But we get it. You know, I guess the question is, well, so what does Stephen Jarvis do in that five-year period of time? Well, I guess he does write a book at one point and kind of becomes a celebrity that he doesn't really want to be. be. And that I don't part's know. interesting. I mean, he goes to a party and someone wants him to write a book and he goes, no, no, I'll never do it. Then he ends up having to sell shoes, and it turns out he does write a book. So I, that's interesting because you know you, you always, I kind of wonder you know what what happens to these characters when something like this happens in their life, and we yeah, get you to do, see a yeah. little bit. And that is true. I think the the problem is is that Stephen Jarvis is played by Michael Moriarty. 
I'm sure some of you out there like this guy. I can't stand his acting. It, it just does not work for me. In one of the, the interviews or, or, or extra features, it does talk about Michael Moriarty's part of his acting style is that, you know, he likes when he's doing uh, a scene, he doesn't always like to interact with the people who are in the scene with him. And he likes to be on the set by himself with just the cameraman and the director. And I'm like, really? I mean, Michael Moriarty is not that A-level status actor that he should be able... Well, who is? Acting is about reacting. And reacting, if you're not yeah. And Cohen talks about this in the commentary, too. And he's it's like something he's proud of, that he can do this. And he says he's running the other people's lines, you know, in his head and responding to that. So I don't think that's it's, anything to brag no, about. It, it's a very bizarre way to do it and his acting style is very odd to to say the least it's not something that I, that I gravitate towards um, and I don't even know how to describe it it's a range from a little bit of overacting to oh he's all over I mean it's... yeah he does he's he overacts he's he's a very odd character and he's not as odd when the film starts and I don't know if some of it is just as time progresses he was trying to get across that that uh, Stephen Jarvis just becomes a little bit more whacked out over yeah. time. I guess maybe that's where he was going with this. You know, some of the other films that he did, he, he was in Q, he was in The Stuff. I remember him from Pale Rider, Clint Eastwood Western that came out in 85 uh, at a time when Westerns just weren't being made anymore. And he plays kind of a... He's not a gunfighter or anything like that. He kind of plays a pacifist kind of a an oddball character not as odd in that movie as he is here so that seems to to support the fact that maybe it's kind of where he was going with the character a little bit and he was also in a return to salem's lot which i don't remember his performance in that because i blocked that movie out of my memory i don't know it's it's an odd performance to to say the least but then on the flip side of the coin his estranged wife is Ellen Jarvis, played by Karen Black, who certainly has a tremendous amount of screen cred from Burnt Offerings to House of a Thousand Corpses to uh, being in Alfred Hitchcock's last film, Family Plot, to having a guest spot in The Invaders, to being in, in the trilogy of terror in the infamous mm-hmm. Zuni fetish doll sequence. A lot of, of, of screen creds for, for her and I did not realize that she had died. Um, oh, I remember that, yeah. She died 2013 at the age of 74. So for some reason, I thought she was still with us. And it was kind of going off on a tangent here. I was look, realizing the other day of some actors and actresses that are still with us. I didn't realize that Doris Day is actually still with us. Wow. And there was another actress. I, I, I She's like 98, and I totally blanked out her name but some of these uh, oh carol channing carol channing god bless her is still alive at 98 wow. and i thought didn't she die like 20 years ago <laughs> some of these actors and actresses they when they they truly have their last role they really do leave the mainstream and enjoy doris day retired back i think in the 70s and has been living at uh in, in carmel by the sea california living a very nice off she's been living a quiet life off of the millions that she made making movies and she's loved by the people in the town they recently did a doris day festival and did a screening of one of her films and she embraced it and and enjoyed the accolades and 
I think that's the way if I was an actor or an actress, that's how I'd want to go is like do my films, save my money and then spend the last 20 years of my life just enjoying a quiet life after two or three decades of living the zaniness. Do it right and then enjoy your retirement. So Definitely. Uh, that's why anyway, I was surprised that she had passed because I thought she was still with us. But And Karen Black is, uh, speaking of unusual actors, very unusual and unique in her roles. And to say she's the most normal acting in this movie, I think is something. I, th- I think she's really good in this. She is movie. good. She is good. She's she's probably the best part of this movie, honestly. And unfortunately, she's not a huge part of it, but she is, I think, the best part of this movie. Other cast members, we get James Dixon back as Lieutenant Perkins again, retired, I guess, at this point, and plays him much more zanily. I mean, he was kind of an evil guy a little bit, and it lives again. He's working for the bad guys now. He just gets called in because he has experience. And there's and one of the funniest sequences in this movie, oh, there's two sequences. One, there's a, a sequence on the boat. Stephen Jarvis eventually gets together with the group who want to go to the island because they they realize the, the babies are still alive. They want to go study them. And, and uh, he's brought in, of course, because his, his child is there and he's got experience and but he starts singing this song on the boat. And I'm, I don't know. It was like, what were they smoking when they did this scene? It was so weird. And James Dixon is singing along and laughing. And, and the others are like, what are you doing? It's, it's such a bizarre sequence. And I guess, I mean, the film really goes down, continues to go downhill from there. The, the, if, if we ever did an It's Alive 4... Uh, James Dixon, I believe, is still with us. And Lieutenant Perkins, technically, is still with us. The last we saw, he's on this island. And I believe he was alive, wasn't he, at the end of the movie? No chance of getting off, I don't think. But God knows that that you could probably do a film and he'd pop up somehow. So he's friends with... Especially if Larry Cohen's involved, because he's friends with Larry Cohen. So another familiar face and another Star Trek reference. Garrett Graham plays Prosecutor uh, Ralston at the beginning of the film and again kind of a familiar yeah he looked familiar to me yeah he, he, kind of a character actor he always kind of plays a zany character he was in Beware the Blob Phantom of the Paradise Strange New World Demon Seed Terror Vision Tunnel Vision he was in the original Child's Play I believe he played I don't think he didn't yeah I think he played like um, like an associate of the mom or something or maybe a uh, somebody like a, a friend or something. But in Star Trek, he played in Star Trek Deep Space Nine. He appeared uh, in the episode Captive Pursuit. He played the hunter in the 1993 episode. And for those of us who will openly admit that they watch soap operas back in the day, I don't anymore, but I did. McDonald Carey plays Judge Watson. And of course, for a gazillion years, he played Dr. Tom Horton on uh, Days of Our Lives. He was also in uh, These Are the Damned, Shadow of a Doubt. Actually, uh, this was his last theatrical film role, but he continued to play on Days of Our Lives, I believe all the way up until 1994. He died in 94 at the age of 81. So I do remember him from Days of Our Lives back in the day. So, So again, some familiar faces in the cast. Unfortunately, when you got your lead actor being Michael Moriarty, it, it didn't help this film any because the film, it, it you've got 
Rick Baker is credited for the for the image, I guess, the creation of the creature. But the special effects are certainly done differently in this film. For one, we use some stop-motion animation, which works to a minor degree, but it looks really odd considering we didn't do it in the first two films. Yeah, I liked it, but it just doesn't look like it's happening in the same... No, no, it, it and that's probably budgetary things. You've got... It doesn't. It doesn't quite fit in to what we're seeing in the, in the rest of the uh, yeah the rest of the the films and rest of this movie. And then you've got, of course, the now adult creatures, the mutants that essentially are actors in suits that uh, in, like half suits. I mean. When you see them from waist down, they look like human legs. And yeah, feet. and and they wanted. I know they. It was explained. I think in one of the interviews that they they wanted to kind of go the route of prosthetic makeup, but ultimately just went with the create a mask and pull over the head, and it looks bad. It really does not look convincing, and unfortunately, we see way too much of them because it just really. Every time you see it, it, it really does ultimately hurt the film. I think. Yeah, and again, Larry Cohen has talked about all along how it's best not to show much. You know, what's to the imagination is scarier. He said on the commentary for this movie that he felt like he owed it to people that have watched two of these movies to show them what the babies really looked like. Then he turns right around and says that was probably a mistake. Yes, sir, I believe that it was. <laughs> yeah, it... Uh... Yeah, it's it, we didn't need to see it, um, and it hurts. It hurts the film, and it got the script. Unfortunately, hurts. There's some yeah, huge just, leaps of. Although, again, I really like the setup, and even there's a little bit more before we get to the adults, and that's that um, the judge, you know, hires this commission to find where to put the babies, and they find it, and he goes, you know, they're not going to get off this island as long as I'm alive. Famous last words, that may be where the time jump is because then we see a newspaper headline that this judge has died. Yeah. So they talk then about how well with a change in people, there's change in policy. So that's what, you know, gets people going back to the island. And that's the point. Still up to then, I think it could have been a cool movie. But from then on, no. I I don't uh, I don't like the idea of them growing up the way they have. I mean they kill they're pretty vicious and it's kind of bloody they kill a lot of people but they then dress in the tattered clothing that the people were wearing they do kung fu, fu fighting on rooftops i, I, I mean it I know. is just i do not like it well at all. and so you've got you know stephen jarvis ends up in cuba because he gets thrown off the oh. boat that's a sequence that is so comical comically bad the Cubans are going to get ready to to interrogate him. You know, why did you come to our country, American? And then the next we see, apparently they took a rowboat or a motorboat across the ocean and take him back to Florida because at some point, apparently, he said, I'm in search of my child. And, and they said, well, let's take you back to your country. And just, I'm almost like they're waving as he's like, well, gosh, thanks, guys, for the lift. And okay, well, good luck finding your son. So stupid. So utterly stupid. And, and it not to the point where it was fun. It was just like, what? You know, and even to the point when we get to, you know, why these creatures are wanting to find their way back to 
to mom basically it's supposedly they they you know they've got measles and and where they got the measles from and and it's yeah i ah, i'm not a fan of this one unfortunately it, it's it's uh i hate to say it, it's one of the worst films i've seen this year honestly it's not a film that i will ever rewatch, and i don't feel i do agree that there's there was a promise for something a lot better but it, it gets lost very quickly along the way. And for me, a lot of it, Michael Moriarty's performance, just every time he's on screen and as the movie progresses, it gets more and more irritating and just a lot of nonsensical stuff that just don't make sense. And, and if, you know, if that was your franchise all the way through, it's kind of like when you watch the Puppet Master movies, there's some crazy stuff. It's established in the first movie that you're watching, you know, killer puppets and there's just going to be weird stuff. The first two movies in this franchise were not approached comically. There was it was a series, a serious films. You know, again, you're dealing with mutant babies, but everything was approached seriously. And then you get to this third movie, and it's just like, I don't know, I I don't know what really what he was wanting to accomplish with this movie, but he doesn't succeed. Well, I think it represents his career trajectory because the movies he made. I mean, up to this point, he had become a different kind of filmmaker. The these were the kind of movies he had evolved into. They were supposedly comedic, uh, intentional or not, I'm not sure. But it it kind of fits with his career at that point, but it does not fit in with the first two movies, like you said. Now, I'm trying to think if the makeup or the costumes had been spectacular, would that have made any difference? No. I don't think so, because no. I just don't want to see him grown up. No, and, I, and you still would have had... The odd script, he still would have had the odd acting from Moriarty. No, you would have had to have changed a lot. You would have had to have changed the lead actor. You would have had to have totally revised the script. There was a lot. Not one thing is going to save this movie. Even I think, honestly, even if you would have changed the lead actor, that might have helped marginally, but you still would have been dealing with a really bad script and the bad special effects. So, so you talk about the films that Larry Cohen was making at this time. He made this movie simultaneously, or back-to-back, rather, with A Return to Salem's Lot. I will, Let me just add my two cents on that film. I watched it back in the day and had never had a desire to revisit it, and it is notoriously known as a really bad film. It is. It was marketed as a sequel to the made-for-television miniseries uh, Salem's Lot based on the Stephen King book. It takes place in a town, kind of implied that it's the same town, run over by vampires. But one of the biggest irritating things is, I mean, the movie's not good. And again, probably my memories of it not being good is probably tied into Michael Moriarty. Uh, Although I don't specifically remember anything about his performance. What I remember most irritating is, is that in the first uh, Salem's Lot miniseries, you have the vampire Mr. Barlow looking kind of Nosferatu-like. He is point blank on the poster and the artwork for this movie and is nowhere to be seen in the movie at all. Not He's not mentioned. He's not seen. Nothing. Incredibly deceptive marketing and for an, an incredibly bad movie. And and I don't know. It, yeah, it's not surprising that it was made back to back with this movie because at this point, Larry Cohen had kind of, as you said, his trajectory had gone into a different direction. So, And I've never seen A Return to Salem's Lot. I am fairly certain. I mean, that is a movie I would have 
watched. I'm pretty sure I saw Larry Cohen was involved and just never wanted to watch it, especially after Island of the Alive. Anything else to say about this before I've got a couple more things just to say about Cohen himself? Well, do we want to talk about what was happening in 1987 first, or do we want to do that after you wrap up Larry Cohen? No, no, no. That's because I'm going to move past that. So. Okay, so I thought we would do 1987 because we're not going to do 1980s movies very often on this podcast. So uh, what was happening and what were some of the movies and all like this kind of stuff, 1987? Uh, some news stories of the day. Jim Baker resigned as the host of PTL after his uh, scandal with Jessica Hahn, which, of course, also led into misappropriation of funds, led to jail time. And here we are in 2018, history repeating itself. Jim Baker is once again a television evangelist down in Branson, Missouri, and his big thing for the last couple of years is selling basically apocalyptic food kits. You buy these buckets of food... That can be placed around your house and used as a coffee table. Get a curtain over them. Get a, get, get, this is how he markets this stuff. And they're like super cheap, hydrated, dehydrated foods. But when the apocalypse happens, and it's going to happen, even though our Lord God and Savior Donald Trump is trying to do his best, and he's a huge fan of Donald Trump, yeah, he, he goes off in this tangent. He's selling these buckets of food. So... Mm. Yeah, interesting that that uh, Jim Baker is alive and well with a new wife and adopted children from Mexico and having a resurgence down in Branson. Um, You're going to make my mascara run, Richard. Oh, my gosh. Uh, if, you know, take some time out and just <laughs> search on YouTube and you'll see that his shtick is actually probably 100 times worse than what he was doing in the 80s. Hmm. And... By God, he's got an audience. Gary Hart had an affair with Donna Rice, which I thought was interesting because one of the movies out in kind of Academy Buzz is The Front Runner with uh, Hugh Jackman. Yeah, interesting. that I watched that, and I reviewed it for Boom Howdy, and I didn't really think it was anything special at first, but it really stuck with me. It's a, I recommend it. It's I would do want to see it. I want to see it. I've, yeah. got, uh, um, I've got that on my radar. So Princess Diana shook the hand of an AIDS patient without gloves. First person to do that publicly, showing the world basically was that you couldn't get AIDS simply by touching someone who had it. Um, now, this was interesting. Uh, He-Man and the Masters of the Universe movie came out, the ill-fated 1987 flick that really didn't look anything like the cartoon series. I didn't realize the cartoon series had ended two years before that, the original cartoon. Uh, it was possibly maybe still in syndication, but... Uh, the toys were really big, but apparently the movie was so bad that the toy sales dropped 98%. Killed the toy line. It would be, I think, five years, well, not five years, I guess three or four years later before a second He-Man series was on television and kind of somewhat revived the franchise. But the movie killed the, the, the toy franchise. 98% drop. Wow. Okay, some popular movies of the day. Nightmare on Elm Street. I didn't write down which number it would, but I guess it would be 19... Would it be three? Maybe? Or not 80s. the original. No. Uh, Wouldn't be two. 80s. Three or four? I, my, I think it was... I'm going to say three. Okay. Yeah, maybe three. Sorry, I didn't write that down. Uh, Beverly Hills Cop 2, Fatal Attraction, Full Metal Jacket, uh, Hellraiser... Uh, James Bond, Living Daylights, uh, The Lost Boys, Predator, RoboCop, a lot of genre films, popular films from the 80s came out in 87. 
Spaceballs, and then you got a few others. You've got Superman Four: The Quest for Peace. Oh God! Um, slightly better than three, sort of, maybe. Uh, and then the ill-fated Ishtar, one of the worst movies reportedly ever made. And actually, I saw it back in the day. It's not as bad as everyone claims. Now, on television, it was the the sitcom ruled the top ten because most of the top ten shows were sitcoms. The Cosby Show, A Different World, Cheers, The Golden Girls, Growing Pains, Who's the Boss, Night Court, all top ten shows for that year. Wow. Uh, music. Uh, well, we got 1980s music. I could go on and on, but some of the bigger tunes that year were Walk Like an Egyptian by the Bangles. We had uh, U2's With or Without You, La Bamba by Los Lobos, uh, Moni Moni by Billy Idol, uh, and Faith by George Michael. I think that was the number one song of the year. Hmm. Uh, and this was interesting. Oh my gosh, this is my Doctor Who reference. I, I knew I had, I'd had, i make it sooner or later. Um, I forgot about this. 1987, this is when a, uh, a pirate uh, broke into two broadcasts in, on Chicago radio sta- or television stations, uh, WGN. And this happened, I believe, in the same evening. A pirate broke into the news broadcast for uh, just a few moments. We had with an image, no audio, but an image of someone, presumably the pirate, wearing a Max Hedrum mask. Later on in the evening on channel WTTW, during a Doctor Who broadcast of the Horror of Fang Rock with Tom Baker, the pirate broke in. This time he was able to stay on the air for, I think it's like a couple minutes, doing a obviously drugged out thing. He he does Max Hedrum. He he talks about some Chicago personalities. He uh, sings a few uh, bars or whatever from the Clutch Cargo theme. Ends up getting spanked by someone in a mask, a woman in a mask. Yeah, crazy sequence. And they couldn't get it off the air because, for starters, the, the, the tower... Uh, the the uh, television tower was at the top of Sears Tower, and there weren't any technicians working on site. So even though the station knew that they needed to st- stop the transmission, there was they had to stop it at at the tower, and they couldn't stop it at the tower. Mm. Here's the interesting thing: so this made national news back in the day. Never caught the person who did it. There were things been put in place now, so that would never happen again. The person faced a $10,000 fine up to a year in prison or perhaps both, but never knew who they were and never caught him. There's my Doctor Who reference, Obscure. It's fun. Both the uh, clips exist on YouTube. Uh, The Doctor Who one, now the WGN, they were, of course, recording it, but uh, PBS station wasn't going to be recording their broadcast. They do have it because Doctor Who fans were recording the horror of Fang Rock, and they reached out and said, if you're a Doctor Who fan who was recording the horror of Fang Rock, please let us know. And that's how they got copies of the of the pirate broadcasts that are now mm. on, on YouTube. So wow. check it out if you've never seen it. It's bizarre. Uh, it's it's definitely interesting to see this, this pirate broadcast um, during Doctor Who, of all things. Hmm. That's what I have for 1987. All right. And soon after that, Larry Cohen made a few other films, one called Deadly Illusion in 1987. Perhaps the most interesting, and they spend a lot of time on it in the King Koa documentary, was he made Wicked Stepmother in 1989. And he wrote the script for Betty Davis because 
she wasn't getting any work at the time. Troubled, troubled production. Uh, I can't remember the details, but his stories about it and Betty Davis are great. So uh, another reason to watch that documentary. In 1990, he made The Ambulance with Eric Roberts. Who played the master in the 1996 uh, Doctor Who movie. Thank you. But and he always he kept writing to he wrote the movie Phone Booth with uh, Colin Farrell in 2002, which is I think a decent movie. I remember liking that, and uh, Larry Cohen wrote that. Like we said, he's still with us today. I think he's 77 years old. He still writes every day. He writes longhand with uh, pen and paper, and uh, just whatever inspires him. He's uh, still out there doing his thing, and I wouldn't be surprised if we didn't. See something else from him. I wish I would have. I would have talked to him uh, when he was here. I mean, again, he had nobody at his table. I do remember he was selling the stuff, uh, replicas yeah. of the stuff, which I think that's what kind of turned me off. I was like, oh, that's the guy that did the stuff. I never connected. You know, I I'd for, kind of forgot about the It's Alive movies, and I definitely didn't know about the Invaders. So uh, I regret that. Cohen loves to work. He's disappointed when a day passes and he has nothing to show for it. Says he's never suffered from writer's block. I don't know. I might beg to differ on that. But, uh, <laughs> he says if he has a problem, he just skips it. He, he goes on to the next scene and then he lets his subconscious fill in what uh, he was having trouble writing. He usually starts with the most exciting scene in a movie and then builds around that. Uh, and that scene is usually... a a scene of great conflict or when there's a turning point in the story. So that is Mr. Larry Cohen and his career and three of his movies in detail, the It's Alive trilogy. His subconscious probably needed to do a little more work on the third film. Yeah. Now I just want to briefly mention the remake. It's Alive was remade in 2009. He's Larry Cohen is credited as the screenplay, not only as the original story, but as a, a co-writer. So I'm not sure if he actually had involvement writing the new script. It's very, very different. Similar only on the surface in that a woman has a mutant baby. But Frank Davis is, you know, well, first of all, this is the night. Well, not the 90s, 2009, but it's been CWized. They're young kids. She's in college, gets pregnant, leaves school. Most of it takes place at the house of... She's not even married to Frank Davis. He's a, a young construction worker. Very odd, the baby is normal looking, but very deadly. And we never really see it attack, but the uh, delivery room is just covered in blood, completely red. I don't know what happens. It's like the electricity flickers when there's an attack, so there's a hint that there's something supernatural. But the baby looks normal, except... He somehow transforms because at the very end of the movie, we do see for the first time a face that's monstrous and he's just got like a million teeth around his little mouth hole. Uh, so that's very different. Um, they are very clear in this what caused the mutation. When she found out she was pregnant, she was a graduate student. She didn't want to leave school. So she took a certain new medication that was supposed to terminate the pregnancy. Instead, it made her very, very sick. And it's... they. It was very clear to me where it was in the, wasn't in the others that that is what caused hmm. this. Yeah, that's about all I'm going to say about it. I've seen the cover for it. For some reason, it never inspired me to, to want to yeah, see it Yeah, I mean, 
I think you should watch it at some point, if, especially if you like It's Alive. I mean, I love comparing and contrasting. Uh, I think I liked it better the second time. I mean, the first time when I saw how different it was, I didn't like it. Now that's kind of baggage that's gone away. It's not good by any means, but I liked it better the second time. I think just in wrapping it up, you know, the It's Alive trilogy is available uh, in a box set on Blu-ray for a cheap price. It's got a few nice extras on it, and uh, it's certainly worth seeing the first two films. If you are so, you know, if you're committed and you are feeling just like you want to torture yourself a little bit, watch the third, but you can stop after the first two and you're fine. Uh, you're not really missing out on much, but uh, definitely watch the first two. I think it's uh, both first two films get a recommendation from me. The, the first one is my favorite. The second one is only a notch below the first one. I think they really do go hand in hand together. If you watch all three, which face it, you probably will, where if you get the box set trilogy, you're going to watch it. Don't let it sully the first two. Try to think of them maybe as two different things, but I'm with Rich 100%. Uh, we are in agreement. Lenore, the anesthesiologist, is going to prep you now. Yes, baby. There's nothing wrong with the baby, Lenore. Nothing wrong with the baby. Welcome back. Rich, this segment is going to be very short. December is not really horror movie month. It's Christmas movie month. If we had a Christmas podcast, which, face it, that's probably something you'd like to do. <laughs> but uh, this is a horror podcast, so uh, we're going to whip through these. The December releases are very, very skimpy. Dracula Prince of Darkness Blu-ray from Shout Factory is probably the highlight for me anyway. That's a big on, one. Uh, December 18th, yes. Uh, Maniac from 1980. I know that's a little bit past our era, but hey, I needed something to mention in this <laughs> section. December 11th, that comes out on Blu-ray from Blue Underground. That's an early, I would say, an early type slasher uh, that you know, if we really squeeze, we could push it into our era. And then the other thing is kind of a curiosity. There's a box set coming out from Arrow Video. It's a De Palma De Niro box set, and it's the three early movies that Brian De Palma directed and Robert De Niro was in. They were friends, classmates, something growing up, got started in their careers about the same time. The movies are Greetings from 1968, The Wedding Party from 1969, and Hi Mom from 1970. I don't think any of them are horror-related at all, but... I haven't even heard of any of those three, yeah, yet, unfortunately. I have. You know, reading about De Palma, you hear about those. I'd like to see them. I don't think I would purchase them. Um, anyway, that's it for December releases that I was able to find. Now, we won't mention them here, but there's some good announcements that have been made for January and particularly February, so we'll be talking about those on future episodes, I'm sure. Birthdays. 
Sunday, tomorrow, because we're recording this on the 1st, Jonathan Frid, Barnabas Collins himself, was born December 2nd, 1924. And then the rest of these birthdays have a theme, and for some reason there were a lot of big people from silent movies that were born in December. Oh. Fritz Lang was born December 5th, 1890. George Millet, filmmaking pioneer, a true pioneer, December 8th, 1861. Paul Wegener, Wegener December 11th, 1874. And F.W. Murnau, December 28th. 1888. Those are some big names, yeah. Yes, all silence. And then a couple, Hammer, it's a big month, for December 21st, 1927, Michael Carreras, who was the head of Hammer during one of its strong eras, and Freddie Francis, director, December 22nd, 1917. Whenever I mention him, I always remind people he became a great cinematographer and won an Academy Award for The Elephant Man. Which I have not seen that in a very long time, and I happened to catch it on, I believe, man, what channel was it being broadcast on? I think maybe we had Showtime, a free preview of it, and I was just scanning through, and uh, it was on, like, in the middle of the night. So I actually have it on my DVR to watch. I, and I know for a while it wasn't available on DVD. It went out of print. So that's, that's uh, a movie that I've been really wanting to revisit for a while. So it's, yeah. it's on my DVR waiting to yeah, waiting Directed to by David Lynch. I've got that DVD. So ooh, maybe I should sell it if it's... Uh, you know, I, I know that I think that it has just recently come out. But uh, yeah, it was unavailable for a while. Because I remember looking it up. I was like, oh, wow, I want to add that. And I was like, no, I don't want to add that to my collection. Not for that price. So. Yeah, and it's a beautiful, beautifully shot in black and white film with cinematography. Yeah, it's, it, it, it's, it's definitely, you know, it's hard to watch at times because the special effects are so realistic. But it's such a, a really good film. Yep. Anniversaries, I kind of grouped these in two groups. And again, there aren't many horror movies that come out in December. Uh, although some really big ones have. But... House of Frankenstein came out December 1st, 1944, and then House of Dracula came out December 7th, a year later. And I, when I see something like that, I always think, well, House of Frankenstein must have done well that time of year, so if they're going to release the next movie in the series, I mean, they do it with Star Wars, with mm -hmm. Harry Potter, you know, that's yeah. what you do. I, and I guess we've been doing it all along. The other thing, a group of TV movies uh, all first aired in December over the years, uh, all in the 70s, in fact, which is interesting. I'm, I'm not sure why there's that phenomenon, but Ants was first shown December 2nd, 1977. The Cat Creature, December 11th, 1973. Terror Out of the Sky, December 26th, 1978. And Tarantulas, The Deadly Cargo, December 28th, 1977. Well, like, three of those have been on Spinoogles. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I saw three of those this year. So, yeah. And Cat Creature I've seen, I don't remember, I think it might be on YouTube, but I watched that fairly recently with uh, Meredith Baxter. Speaking of Spinoogles, we have his entire schedule for the TV Terror Guide. Uh, tonight, if you're psychic and can hear us before <laughs> the episode is posted, 20 Million Miles to Earth is on. Uh, the 8th, next Saturday, Creature from the Black Lagoon. December 15th, Revenge of Frankenstein, A Little Hammer. December 22nd, Have Rocket Will Travel. That's Three Stooges. It right? is. Uh -huh. okay. We saw at... We did. Saw it at Cinema Gogo, -Go, yeah. correct. 
And then on the 29th, The Mysterious Island of Beautiful Women. Yeah, that's unfortunate that they're showing that one again. That's, that's, it's, yeah, that's not a great one. TCM has, this is interesting, on December 10th, John Landis is the guest programmer, and you would think we'd see some great horror movies. Only one, and they don't even categorize it as horror, but The Monster and the Girl from 1941 mm-hmm. is a movie John Landis has, well, it's something about a brain in an ape's body, so. It, yeah, it, yes. it's a universal, uh, well, is it universal, or is it licensed by Paramount? Um, yeah, it's not that great. It's pretty boring. Yeah, so, and the others are not, you know, are even further from horror than that one is. Uh, on the 14th, TCM is doing sort of a theme. It kind of goes with our island and our Dr. Island. They're doing the most dangerous game, Island of Lost Women. From Hell It Came, The Enchanted Island, which I don't think is probably horror. It doesn't sound like it. And then Hammers the Lost Continent. So. Again, a lot of islands that people yes. need to keep off their... I think their... everyone wants to get away to an island, but they've got... It never their... ends well. Yes, yes. And then finally, uh, not horror per se, but on December 26th, Deliverance. Um, <laughs> no, that that's pretty horrific. Yeah. And I don't know that we've mentioned it. We talk about when Burt Reynolds died. That was recently, and so I thought I'd mention it here. Um, yeah, I mean, he's not really. He didn't really ever do any no, horror films. No, no, but he, yeah, he's. But it was certainly big in the era of some of the movies we talk about. Yeah, actually, I think uh, Me TV actually aired some of his Gunsmoke right, episodes, right. which don't get seen as much because he uh, played the blacksmith Quint Asper, who was uh, who was a half breed, as he was described on the show, and he wasn't on for very long, and he was like right on before. They brought in, I think, the character of Festus, which then became very popular. He was kind of in the hour black and white episode thing that never really got syndicated very much. So a lot of people kind of forgot that Burt Reynolds was actually on Gunsmoke. So a little tidbit there for you. And that is it for our new business. Uh, Richard, what's up with you and your projects? Uh, you know, typical post-Halloween. It's been a little bit quiet. You do 31 consecutive days of reviews, and, and you kind of come off the holiday or Halloween holiday and you're kind of like you need to decompress so uh not a lot i've been uh, recording some podcast uh, segments uh, uh over at dread media i know that des has been uh, uploading a few uh reviews that i've done and he's got a few more scheduled uh, tourist trap is finally going to get uh, played i believe as we record this i think it's going to be the uh december 3rd episode uh you and i just this past week saw the house that jack built a very polarizing very not classic horror club <laughs> genre film um but i recorded a uh, review of that which will probably be played some point in december a couple of other films i'm going to do a christmas themed film for him a uh, contemporary christmas horror flick called merry christmas as well as um the leaf blower massacre is coming at some point i i still have not seen that film uh I need to see it. So, yes, those, and I've done a segment for the Memiverse, monthly Memiverse audio cast, uh, talking about a, a very wacky Christmas flick called The Magic Christmas Tree. You can hear about that over in the December edition of that podcast. Other than that, um, I am going to do my annual Countdown to Christmas. That'll come up about a week before Christmas. Just some um, other versions of A Christmas Carol that I have not reviewed uh before and and a few other 
Christmas themed films that kind of not necessarily genre related, but uh, I do that every year. The countdown to Christmas, just some uh, random Christmas film reviews, and so I'm going to do that again this year. I think it's going to start the Monday before uh, Christmas and and uh, kind of go every other day leading up to uh, I believe Christmas Eve. So. Uh, that's what I've got coming up in the next month over at caseycinephile.com and monstermoviekid.wordpress.com. Business as usual. I don't really have any special projects at classichorrors.club. Same old, same old. Not that it isn't just dynamic and exciting and everyone should go <laughs> visit. I just don't particularly have anything to point out. Kind of a quiet time of year, I think. Yeah. Or, or, yeah. yeah. You know, thinking about a new year coming up, what are we going to do differently or we've got a list of good stuff we've been doing some brainstorming we've got some good stuff and i uh, I do want to say the book that we've talked about every month is finally out it's a century of horror a pictorial history of the cinefantastique from our friends across the pond at we belong dead and unsung horrors available now for order some people may have copies on their way. I have yet to see it. I'm dying to hold it into my hands. I should be getting my copy soon. Well, those are excellent books. They're just amazing. And I know, like, the Peter Cushing one sold out. You know, they still have uh, Unsung Horrors and the Son of Unsung Horrors. Doing a reprint on the 70s. Yeah, they did. On Monster the 70s Memories. Did they already run out of that? Because I don't on think the, they ran out. On uh, that one? Okay. Um, so, yeah. So, those are excellent books. Definitely well worth adding to your collection if for no other reason alone the fact that you don't toot your own horn on this enough but you are featured in all of those books other than the monster memories one you're featured in all of the books so congratulations on another publication you know at some point in the future these these books will be on my bookshelf and and will be passed on to future generations Uh, your your wealth of knowledge will continue to inspire future generations. I'm waiting for Unsung Horrors to sell out because I was excited. That was my first book. I bought a few copies thinking I could sell them, and uh, I discovered it when I moved. I've got still a couple, so I'm wanting to sell out so I can you know sell them for exorbitant prices. You you have that one right. <laughs> I, I do. Are you gonna try to sell it to me? <laughs> yeah, darn it. Okay. Yeah, no. Uh, I I would you know I'd be surprised if at some point it doesn't sell out. I know they do a limited run. Peter Cushing probably sold out quicker because it's that name recognition. You're working. There's a Vincent yeah, Price one in the works. Yeah, that's been done a, a long time ago. I don't know when what the schedule is. I would suspect that would be one that would sell out as well. Peter Cushing sold out. Vincent Price will sell out. And the covers are amazing for these books too. So uh, just for that and, and the fact that they're they're color, they're it's very slickly put together. And these are not small books. You know, they're a little higher priced, but what you're getting is a wealth of information. Yeah, I think uh, this one's 520 pages. That's yeah, these that are these are uh, these are fantastic books and they look great on the bookshelf. All right, you mentioned thinking about things that we're going to do in the future next year. Tell us what we're talking about next month, Richard. Well, uh, do we want to talk about what we're doing in a couple weeks? Sure, sure. And then next month. Okay. Sure. Well, you know, this is episode 24. So next episode is 25, which makes one think of the 25th of December, thinks of Christmas. You know, last year we had talked about doing a bonus Christmas episode and real life intervened and we didn't get it done. Well, guess what? We're doing it this year. And so on the 17th of December, we are going to be uh, posting episode 25, a mini bonus episode where we will talk about 
Santa Claus Conquers the Martians from 1964, as uh, well as talk a, a little bit about our Christmas wish list and stuff. It'll be a short little bonus episode, uh, not a lot uh, of our regular features on it, just a little fun little thing to throw out as our, as our Christmas gift to you. More of our melodic voices to... Put sugar plums and fairies dancing in your head. How about yeah, that? And when you think of the 25th and you think of Christmas, like Richard said, you naturally think of Santa Claus Conquers the Martians. Absolutely. I'm over here with a big grin on my face because you said it will be a shorter episode. You know, this was going to be a shorter episode because we didn't have as much feedback. And I'm sitting here looking at the clock. Uh, of course, I've left it running the whole time and we've had breaks, but I, I just don't think it's possible. There's something that... If we get three hours out of Santa oh. Claus Conquers the Martians, mm-hmm. we need help. No, 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 no. Uh, not going to happen. Anyway, that's our next uh, episode on the 17th of December. And then, uh, yeah, we've got a list of ideas for, for next year. And so we're going to go a bit more classic and a bit more lighthearted with, uh, I guess, would be episode 26. Uh, For our January episode, we're going to be doing a trilogy of classic horror comedies. Uh, We're going to be uh, talking about Cat and the Canary from 1939, starring Bob Hope. Ghost Breakers from 1940, starring Bob Hope. Then the 1953 remake of that film called Scared Stiff with Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. Um, So a bit of compare and contrast and and a little bit of, of humor. You know, I always think of, like, Turner Classic Movies often does, like, uh, Marx Brothers marathons to kick off the year. They've done that numerous years. So kind of lighten things up uh, as we kick off the new year. And then uh, we've got some interesting ideas. You know, we're talking about doing some months on Lon Chaney Jr. and Sr., maybe a month on Lionel Atwill. Uh, we've got some themes. Uh, I guarantee you we'll have another Hammer Fest coming up in 2019. Maybe some of the lesser-known Godzilla films when we have that new Godzilla film coming out. So uh, maybe some Wax Museum films. A lot of fun stuff we've got uh, coming up for 2019. And uh, we're going to be kicking it off with a trilogy of horror comedies in uh, January. And if you have ideas that you'd like, movies you'd like us to talk about, let us know. One way you can do that, like Rob Kelly did earlier, is call our hotline, 616-649-2582. That's 616-649-CLUB. You can also find us at the Classic Horror Club Podcast Facebook group. Email classichorrors.club at gmail.com. We each have our own Facebooks and Twitters. There's no excuse for not reaching out to us somehow and providing feedback, telling us what you think, and suggesting some future episodes. Now, we know we've got some potential feedback coming in from uh, our good friend, uh, uh, Mr. Steve Turek, and it's we're not going to include that in this episode, so we'll probably get a double dose of him in uh, January. One thing we're going to do better about is putting word out on Facebook when we will be recording the next episode to give you a chance to call in and uh, leave some feedback. Now, we didn't hear from Jonathan uh, this month, but he's been in busy dad mode, although we did on a personal level hear from him yesterday. And so he's been busy, but he's staying in touch with us. And and, uh, baby Stella is is adorable and loving her monster blanket. I, I think we'll be hearing from him possibly sometime in the near future, but we know he's out there. I think we'll have a great episode to kick off kick off January. And, and I'll probably say this in the next episode, but I'm going to say it now. You know, it's the holiday season. If you'd like to give us something, give us a rating on iTunes. 
just real quick go in and put uh, however many stars you feel and a, a word or two. Doesn't take long at all. That's just something we're really lacking. I think we're really growing and have a good good support in a lot of areas. But give us some love on, on iTunes if, if you've got any love to give. Yeah, I, I think uh, we've got a great community that's been growing as we approach our second anniversary of the show, which is absolutely insane. Seems like we just were talking about King Kong. And if we're talking about number episodes, this would actually be our second. Technically, yeah, it would be. Yeah, it would be. Yeah, we've been doing this for, for almost two years. Uh, we want to hear from you. Yeah, let us know. Uh, feedback. If you don't do it on iTunes, you can do it on uh, on Facebook. Reach out to us directly and say, hey, you're doing a fantastic job, or hey, you need to do this better. So, yeah, you could tell us, hey, I'm sick of Star Trek references, you know, and we can we can accommodate that. No, no, we can't. <laughs> All right, well, let's go out. We've got a song called Island of Death by Barris Erdemir. It's from Underground Rave, and that's available on iTunes, where you all are going to go and give us a rating. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you in just a couple weeks. See you then. I guess anytime. Ready? I can just break into like my schoolhouse rock. Man and woman had a little baby. Yes, they did. Now there's three in the family. Sorry. <laughs> you know, I did record that, so that may come out sometime. <laughs> Thank you.